Today I'm talking with Ross Millerchamp. Ross worked for Fish and Game North Canterbury for 25 years and is well known for his book Salmon Fever and his many other articles in various publications. In 2008, Ross gained some very unfortunate publicity when he fell ill with necrotizing fasciitis or otherwise known as flesh-eating disease. He survived after a long battle in hospital and much care from his wife Ginny, and is now back hunting, fishing and flying his own aircraft. I flew down to his airstrip in Canterbury for this discussion and gained a very small insight into the challenges of living day in, day out that a disability can bring. However, rather than letting this get the better of him, Ross has embraced life to the full, and I have to say that if I'm ever unfortunate enough to be in a similar situation, I'd love to think that I'd have a similar attitude. I hope you enjoy this discussion, and if you do, I'd really appreciate it if you like and subscribe to the channel. Thanks for watching. Thanks for having me here. Um, I've read a lot of your articles and writings, so I sort of feel like I'm in fishing royalty a wee bit <laughs> um, as a very amateur fisherman. But I've just got a couple of photos which I'll put up on the screen if you want to just scroll through them. Um, so the first one's of you, obviously, and then your father, both off your book. And that one there, um, we were talking this morning about an article that Ted Millerchamp wrote, which was your grandfather in 1984, and that photo was in the article. Was that your grandfather, or is that a random photo? You know, the one on the right's my grandfather, Ted. Yeah. Okay. So a real family affair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he grew up in the sort of halcyon days of fishing and hunting. Like he started salmon fishing not long after salmon first became established in New Zealand, and he was there for you know the time when salmon were rare to the point where they become much more that you know a genuine fishery and he sort of yeah. saw it at its best really and um, yeah, very much so from yeah. reading the article yeah and then i just just because i wanted to skite a wee bit that i have caught a couple of salmon that one there is me at 16 right at the rakaia river mouth my right. first ever salmon and the next one is last year i caught that salmon up the uh the wairau yeah oh, good. so just throw something out of myself <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, you said that as a child, I've, I've read that you were obsessed with salmon fishing. I presume that came from your father and grandfather, uh, and that hasn't left you even to this day. Yeah, I mean, I've got to admit that the fishery's been struggling a bit lately, and I, I enjoy going fishing, but I do sort of got to the point where I struggle with the killing, killing, mm. killing the fish because you wonder how many are sort of going to be left. So I have lost a bit of enthusiasm for it simply just because of, you know, that it used to appear to be a sort of unlimitless resource and now it clearly has limits and, you know, there is a risk that we could lose it altogether and I'm not sure that me as an angler would make any difference to that. But still, some of the some of the shine has come off it from that perspective. Yeah, that's something that I had on my questions to ask you. You know, do you feel pangs of guilt now when you knock the salmon on the head I know I do you know I caught two that day in fact I caught four um they're all in a hole and kept one but I felt very guilty keeping it yeah I I haven't 
I haven't fished for salmon in the last couple of seasons, partly for that reason. But, I mean, you have to trust that the fisheries managers know what they're doing. Um, you know, anglers can't be expected to, I don't know, sort of do fisheries management on the hop. In Canterbury now, you're only allowed to catch two salmon for a season and one mm. for a day, and you've got to trust that that's adequate. I mean, I don't think angling pressure is the driver of the downturn, but when things get to a certain <coughs> level of fragility... You know, every little fish starts to count. And certainly in the old days, there was no indication that harvest made any difference. And anglers used to brag about catching 10, 50, 100 salmon a year. And, and now that would be, they'd be a little embarrassed to talk in those terms. Yeah. What is it about salmon fishing that's so addictive? Let's pretend we've gone back 20 years and there's plenty of fish there. <laughs> Um, There's something alluring about it, and it's even, it's almost a mystical fish, isn't it? Because there's so much about them that we just don't understand in our technology and with all the research. Why do they come back to the same stream, and where do they go in the sea, and how do they do this? There's something about fishing for those fish, which, what is it for you? Yeah, there's two things probably. Firstly, in Canterbury, the the sea fishing isn't that flash. And so by comparison, you know, salmon fishing really stands out. But effectively, you're catching a big marine fish in a freshwater environment, and that's an unusual sort of mix, you know. Like mm. The biggest salmon I've caught was 35 or 36 pounds, which in a fast-flowing braided river is, it's it's a handful. You know, it's, you know, you catch a, I've caught marlin from a boat that are not, I mean, they might fight for longer, but you're always sort of can just move the boat on top of the fish. Whereas salmon, get a great big salmon in a fast-flowing river, it is a real challenge. And I think, you know, for me, some of the magic has disappeared because the fish not only have got fewer but smaller, and all of a sudden, if you hook one, it's not there's not the same degree of sort of anxiety about whether you'll actually manage to get it ashore or not. Yeah. But but you're right, they are mystical. They don't feed when they're in fresh water, so you have to sort of anger them into taking a lure and much of the time they'll sit there and just watch the lures go past completely unaffected and then for some reason they'll switch on and they'll be catchable and you know that that sort of level of uncertainty and difficulty is is part of it I'm sure. Mm. I did read in your book and I've found from the few salmon I've caught in my life that normally if you fish a hole and they're in there you'll get them in the first couple of casts and probably half of the other ones in the hole as well. Yeah, that's been my experience. But um, I think it's also changed. In the old days, you were fishing in pools with lots of other fish in the pool, and there must have been stuff going on between the fish that was, you know, often when you get fish in groups, they become more aggressive or they become more territorial and defend their space because, um, you know, there's all the social interaction going on around them. And yet today, it might be the only fish in the pool. It's certainly a different... Mm. Mm. scenario my sense is they're not quite as aggressive as they used to be probably because they're just by themselves by or, themselves yeah yeah. <clears throat> yeah I remember when I was 16 you know it was so exciting down at the Rakai Rivermouth wasn't it the sun was coming up there was a hundred fishermen there there would be one or two fish on at any time yeah. for several hours and there could be 50 caught in a morning up to 40 pounds it was just awesome yeah no that that has changed and interestingly some of the it turns out with the decline in the fishery the people who are left the anglers who are left are real enthusiasts who sort of get the environment and being in a lovely location and that all that element of it but 
there used to be a real element of sort of meat hunters amongst the group that but as soon as the fish started to disappear they wandered off to other things and, mm. and it was in the old days you know going to the river mouth was quite intimidating for for people who were not local to that river or yeah, very you know, much so. there's all these yeah. social stuff going on about where you stand and <laughs> yes. it's and if you get tangled up with someone else you're just scorned on whereas now it's a much more sort of genteel sort of friendly environment because the people that are left are really just there for the experience and the fish are they like to catch fish mm. as does anyone but they're not you know they're not the same sort of hungry people and um yeah, yeah it's it has changed when did you catch your first salmon um i was 10 and went fishing with my father and grandfather teared up above the rakai gorge and caught a couple of salmon and it was you know looking back my grandfather chose the day and the pool and the gear and i just cast the line it in. exactly and so yep. at the time you get the impression that it's <clears throat> You know, I went some years after that before I caught another one. My initial experience was, oh, this is relatively easy. Mm. But, you know, there's even in the good old days, there were plenty of days where you absolutely got skunked and caught nothing. You know, even when there was many tens of thousands of fish running the river every year, you know, there's still days where you've only got 100 kilometres of river and you know there might be 5,000 fish in that section. Where have they all gone? But there's still days where they, they, they get on top of you. I wonder for those watching that aren't familiar with the life cycle of the salmon, if you could, in two or three minutes, if it's possible, just give an overview of the life cycle from, um, you know, when they hatch until when they come back. Sure. So salmon in the northern Pacific are the dominant um, fish biomass species, basically. They are incredibly successful because they they spawn in protected, sheltered freshwater areas, but they grow and feed in, in abundant marine areas where the water temperatures are more favourable for growth. So they start life as fertilised eggs that are buried under shingle in tiny little tributaries of big rivers. Um, our species of salmon, Chinook salmon, tend to dominate bigger catchments, bigger flowing, flowing rivers. So, which, sorry, which is also a Pacific salmon yeah, it's or one of the, a Quinnet salmon? They're all the same. Uh, Pacific, there's five species of Pacific salmon. Chinook, Quinnet, King salmon are all different names for the right. same species, but they're the biggest species of salmon. So that they they lay, compared to fish like snapper and things, which, which have tiny little eggs, which just, they broadcast them into the sea and they wash around and, and most of them die. Salmon have quite large eggs and they put a lot of energy into putting them into really locations where they've got a high chance of succeeding. So they bury these fertilised eggs into shingle nests effectively under the gravel, but in places where the water still percolates through the gravel to keep oxygen to the eggs. They live, they hatch and live under the gravel in a completely protected environment. Nothing can get at them for a couple of months. Then they swim up into these tiny little tributaries of small streams, which are, again, quite protected, tend not to be prone to floods, tend to be too small for big predators like trout and things. They they catch up into these quite... They're already quite big when they hatch by fish larvae standards. They live in protected freshwater for a bit, um, and they mostly feed on insects when they're in the in that stage of their life. And then something switches on and they, they decide to migrate for the ocean. 
in New Zealand, it's a relatively short run to the ocean. Like they could get to the ocean in a couple of days if they just floated with the current, but they tend to just slowly work their way down the river growing as they as they travel. And basically, as they get bigger, the population of little fish needs more food, so they just move into bigger and bigger areas. They ultimately end up in the estuaries at about six months of age. Eating insects. Or... Yeah, and that's the cool thing about salmon is they, they're largely insect feeders when they're in fresh water, which means they don't have a big impact on native fish. They... They, you can have very large numbers of salmon living in streams that couldn't, that shouldn't be able to carry that many fish. They get they get to sort of six months of age and they go out into the ocean, and so they don't they don't have a huge impact on the freshwater environment because they're only there a short time and they're only feeding on insects when they're quite small. They get into the ocean and the roles sort of reverse that everything wants to eat them because they're these these beautiful little oily fish that. Kawai in New Zealand and a whole lot of predators tend to home in on. But they go out to the ocean where they spend a couple of years. Um, we don't really know where they go. They think in New Zealand our salmon are long-distance migrators. That We think we just happen to introduce a species that's a relatively non-migratory, which is probably why they managed to find their way back. Like in the Northern Hemisphere, they migrate hundreds or thousands of miles, and, and that that migration route still pre-programmed into salmon. And so when some of them were bought here in the early days, they just migrated away and were never mm. seen again. When they, sorry to interrupt, um, when they migrate to the ocean, is that at a certain time of year or it could be all through the year when they all drift down? Yeah, there's, getting into the technical <coughs> stuff, but there's, there appears to be two types. Ones that migrate to the ocean quite quickly go to sea, have very high mortality, but they're actually in the ocean environment for a longer period of time. There's others that spend up to a year in fresh water and then go to sea as quite large fish, um, well, large by <laughs> salmon stand, little salmon standards. Um, they've got a much higher chance of survival, but they're not in the ocean quite as long, so they can't achieve quite the same size. But effectively, for eight or nine months, of the, maybe 12 months a year, there's small salmon trickling out <coughs> into the ocean, and that just spreads the... The risk if they all turned up at the river mouth on the same day all of the predators would learn to turn up on the river mouth at the same day and that would be the end mm, of them mm. so they stay at sea for two and three years between two to three years in new zealand um and in the ocean there's more food and they they quickly become fish eaters and crustacean eaters at that point there's far more food but the water's actually warmer so salmon like all fish cold-blooded they can only grow at the rate that the water that they're in allows. So cold water fish grow slower, but they come, salmon come into the ocean and they get into, they're not a warm water fish, but certainly the water temperatures are warmer and they grow really quickly. So then they, at a certain point in their life, something switches on and says it's time to return to fresh water to spawn. So and you, know, you can get tons and tons of these great big, ocean predators that if they had to feed their way up the river there wouldn't be enough food for them and so they've got this strategy where they effectively stop feeding before they enter fresh water they they fuel their upstream migration just by using the oil and fat reserves that are in their body when they start and that's why fresh salmon is so oily and rich because it's all just okay. fuel to allow them to travel for up to six months up a river without eating um, they 
at the last stages of their life, just before they starve to death effectively, they go into, back into the same tributary spawning streams and lay their eggs and the cycle starts again. Um, but they, in America, like in the Yukon River, salmon go thousands of miles inland, and yet in New Zealand... Without eating? Yeah. And in New Zealand, it's a relatively short 100-kilometre run, but they still take three to five months in New they can take three to five months in New Zealand to get that short distance. So they spend a lot of time sitting around doing nothing on the way. And, yeah. and that's they're really hard to catch when they're just sitting around doing nothing. You need mm, to get mm, them when they're active. Sometimes you see them in the pools, don't yeah. you? They're very dormant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's an amazing story. Where would you see the state of the South Island salmon fishery at the moment if you were to rate it 1 to 10 based on previous years um where would it be i would say two or three it's there's a history of salmon fisheries especially chinook salmon fisheries going extinct all around the world and ours is showing ours is in in that position of vulnerability where it potentially could just disappear Mm. um it's it's got to the point where all things like angler harvest and the young fish that are lost into irrigation takes and hydropower schemes and stuff. All of that stuff didn't seem to affect the fishery once, but probably does now. It's not the driver of of the downturn, but all of, when the when the fishery gets sufficiently um, fragile, little stuff like that can tip it over. So I do worry about its um, future, and um, yeah, it's 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 hard to read. But all I know is, I remember twenty years ago, I read a really interesting book about salmon fisheries in North America and they reckon the author said 40% of Chinook salmon fisheries in the US had gone extinct even 20 years ago. Yeah that's interesting because I I did wonder if our fishery is in time proving not resilient because it's not a native fishery and maybe native fisheries in America and Alaska are more resilient because, you know, it's a native species. Is there anything in that or not really? Um, arguably, you might say the opposite, actually. Our salmon have got a bit of a charmed life that they, there's no commercial harvest of them. They, um, they live in rivers that there's not many. When they're in freshwater, there's not many other competing species. Like in North America, there's salmon, five species of salmon, steelhead trout. There's stuff going on everywhere. But the thing that seems to be affecting salmon fisheries all around the world is just oceans are getting warmer and salmon yeah. just aren't terribly good at responding to that. Um, they Because they're locked in it, having to return to the streams where they started their life, they can't sort of move with the water temperature. I mean, things like kingfish are turning up in bluff and fieldland and stuff, and they just seem to move around to follow the warm water. And if the water gets warm down south, they'll go down south, and they seem to manage that, whereas salmon are really fixed into locations. Their genetic has locked them into this cycle of (laughs) destruction almost. The other thing, that the, the streams where they spawn, the habitat is incredibly specific. They have to have bigger boulders and rocks in the stream bed than say trout would use and there's not the the gravel alpine gravel sort of spring tributaries of of the big braided rivers in canterbury are perfect and but on the west coast and other parts of new zealand they don't have that habitat so if they 
moved down to Otago and Southland, there's not much of that habitat there. So mm. that, that probably limits them as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure for when you're in the role and the people in the fisheries management now, there's, there's such a challenge because there's so much we don't know. I mean, back in the 1900s, there was a release of fish and, you know, within 10 or 20 years, they were just expanding in, in massive numbers. Um, now, from a layman's perspective, it seems that nothing we can do can make that work. But I did read an interesting, the article about your, that your granddad said, he, he mentioned that the in March, the rivers were black with salmon from Glenna Reef in Tentburn. So he was obviously under the impression that, you know, at that time in the mid-80s, the hatcheries were fantastic and you can just raise them and release them and have as many as you want. But now I think we're coming to the conclusion that it's detrimental because they're, they're diluting the the wild nature of the salmon. Is that correct? Yeah, that's sort of correct. Hatcheries are a really controversial issue. If you release fish into a into an environment that's really productive often more fish release means more fish coming back but if you release them into an environment that's struggling to sustain the fish the wild fish that are there the returns are often quite poor mm. and at that point where there's not much habitat or production the wild and the hatchery fish start competing directly with each other for food and space but in the 80s you could argue that actually the hatchery releases at that time were, go were going into an environment that actually had space for them and it's not as simple as hatcheries are good hatcheries are bad but when fisheries start to decline and there's some limit on their ability to produce fish or whatever they can become problematic uh, i think in places where the you put a dam across the river and the fish have no access to their traditional spawning grounds. Hatcheries are the like only... the Clutha or the... The Waitaki. Waitaki and yeah. that's the irony is that all of the hatchery activity took place in rivers which didn't need it. But we've got a couple of rivers in New Zealand like the Clutha and the Waitaki where it would have made absolute sense. But such is the nature, nature of sort of... Fish and Games are very... The organisation that managed salmon is a very regionalised organisation and individual regions make up their own minds about stuff without necessarily taking the national context into view but mm. that's that's I mean this the system has fish and game have been successful in managing what they've you know the species they're charged with but there's odd little things like what happened with hatcheries and, and mm. the salmon fishery that are a little quirky I suppose. Is there any argument to um or is there an argument that it's just a cyclic thing and it's going up and down and on average um, it'll pan out? Do you think we'll ever get back to the heady days of the 80s? It's like, it is like the climate change argument that, you know, can you pin one storm like the cyclone we've just had entirely on global warming? You know, you probably can't, but you can pin the frequency of storms in general on it. And so... With salmon, they are cyclic, they're going up and down, but generally the trend is, is slowly down. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I I think that's it's hard to argue with that. I mean, but climate is climate. We could have, despite we've got a warming, despite we've got a warming um, general trend in our climate, we could still have some cold years. We could have New Zealand salmon fisheries particularly affected that New Zealand's this tiny island in the middle of a great big ocean 
and you know like up in north america and and russia and japan where the north where pacific salmon are really um, the dominant species i would say they probably have less inter yeah, they probably have less seasonal variation than we have in climate just because they're bigger land masses, bigger ocean. Whereas where this, if we mm. get, the argument in New Zealand is when we get La Nina weather, we get more warm water pushing down from the Pacific and in El Nino weather we don't. And it might not be as simple as that, but we're a little pinprick in the middle of a really big ocean. And if the, even if the ocean in general is relatively stable in temperature, a little shift that pushes the warm water south or north can make a dramatic difference so mm. you know we could still have some good years but um i think the focus of management now is really on securing the fishery because if we lost them i hate to say it that we'd never get permission to put them back you know mm. like mm. new zealand most of the freshwater fish and almost all of the species that people hunt for don't belong in new zealand and no. if you ask to bring deer back or chamois or tar back it would be a categorical no yeah. so in a way if they we don't preserve them and we lose them it's not just a matter of getting some more and chucking them back in i suspect that opportunity won't mm. come back so mm -hmm. is fishing games um job or role to keep the fishery to a level where people can keep catching and taking fish do you think there's a day when we might have to make the salmon fishery a catch and release fishery or is it always a given that you're going to be allowed to knock a salmon on the head oh not at all um that fishing game are, are they're tasked by statute to manage for recreational use um there's no point having them here as an exotic species that does have impacts, especially brown trout have more impacts on native fish, but does have impacts on native biodiversity. There's no point having them if, if there's no benefit to the population. Um, but fish and game can certainly justify shutting fisheries and shutting and closing down fisheries as a short-term measure as a way of keeping the species going. There's no, they don't seem to have a problem with that. But you would argue that Currently, the, there's a season limit bag of two salmon in most of Canterbury, and you really couldn't shut it down much more than that um, and actually retain a viable fishery. So they're probably it's probably about as restricted as it can be. Um, is, is that two fish limit been well received generally by most salmon fishermen who know the state of it, or, or is there a, a section that, you know, think you should be able to take more? Um in general, I'd say it has been well received. Most people are in it for the long game and can see the fragility of the fishery. But rules like that, like a season limit bag of two, actually only affect a handful of people because even in the good old days, most people caught nothing. That's and it's, true. It's, yeah. it's a, the whole fishery is based on people buying a licence and, I hate to say it, generally being unsuccessful. <laughs> mm. um, so there were, I mean, I know we used to own a hut at the Rakai mouth and there was people there who worked all their lives retired they didn't want to travel the world they had no ambition to to take up new sports they were going to go salmon fishing they sold their house in town bought a batch they were going to fish for salmon and it's been really hard for them to to now be told you can only catch two in a year and um you know that they've borne the brunt of the rules whereas like i haven't salmon fished the last couple of years partly because i feel a bit bad about it 
but I mean, I've just done other stuff, you know, I've yeah. gone hunting or flying or whatever. And it, it's a wee bit of a hole in my life, but it's not a dramatic hole. Whereas a handful of people, you've got to accept that they have really borne the brunt. And I think in general, they've taken it in good spirits, but you know, you still can't underestimate that for them at a personal level, it's yeah. not, you know, it's sort of their whole life strategy of working, getting a batch, getting a boat or a motorbike. I mean, a lot of people at the Rakai Huts were relatively, didn't have lots of money and they spent half of their retirement on a brand new four-wheeler thinking it'll it'll last them 20 years of retirement. And it was funny little things like that. And, um, you know, that, that has been hard on those people. Mm. Can we talk briefly about the brown trout fishery in the South Island? You've written a lot about it and um, I had a look at a report about the Lake Ellesmere um, fishery that I think you co-authored. Where would you say we're at with the brown trout fishery? It seems to me that we're in a lot better state. There's a lot of big fish around in the high country waters. I, I remember um, my grandfather telling me about the Selwyn and the Ashley and how amazing these fisheries were, and now there's hardly any water in those rivers. Yeah, the um, you'd have to say that it's a story of two halves. The the high country inland fishery is probably as who knows. It seems to be as good as it's always been. It might be better. Um, the the thing with brown trout is that they because a lot of people catch them and let them go, they're really clever and they learn from being caught. So you might argue that trout have become harder to catch, but probably not because their population has declined, but because they've learned there's more anglers, especially in remote places where people can fly into or whatever. You, you might argue that they're harder to catch, but in terms of biodiverse, uh, biomass and stuff, there's no indication that anything's changed. Um, there's this odd thing in the high country that's a bit, disloyal to say but a lot of fisheries and really pristine waters have actually benefited a bit from from a bit of pollution <laughs> so a bit of super Quiet. <laughs> well, oddly a little bit of superphosphate in the top of the catchment has yeah clearly there's a point where there's too much and coastal canterbury is an example of too much but some of our really pristine high country lakes you could argue have actually benefited from a little bit more production from a little bit more nutrients in the water because the water was so unbelievably pure that it was also unbelievably lacking in nutrients that generate plant growth that generate insect okay. growth that generate fish growth that generate trout growth mm. so high country fisheries generally are pretty good state the, the the fishing community have adapted to more people by embracing catch and release and yeah. that's and brown trout they seem to survive catch and release well they learn from it so if you know, they're not being caught. Some American fisheries based on sort of brook trout, the fish get caught like 20 times a year and the, mm. and, and the season, the season's not very long and that must take its toll. But the other side of the brown trout fishery, and especially in Canterbury, is the coastal sea-run trout fishery has really collapsed. Okay. And it was the Ellesmere Selwyn fishery was at its fundamental still a fishery where the fish went out to the ocean and put on weight, came back into fresh water. Um, we used to have big coastal sea-run fisheries in the Rakaia, the Waimakariri, the Rangitata, the Waitaki, and they have really plummeted. Mm. Um, and it's thought that their primary food source which, source, which was a little species of native smelt, has been affected by 
probably land use change. It used mm. to be really productive. It's it used to be re- the little species of smelt were really prolific, and they appear not to be anymore. So it is that's a bit confronting. And unlike the salmon situation, which I do believe is mostly ocean warming, which you know, at a New Zealand level, it's hard for us to do much about. I do think the sea-run trout fishery probably is more land use change, more farming intensification, and it's an example of, you know, where it's it's well beyond a little bit of nutrients. It's yeah. a lot of nutrients, and yeah. it's got to the point where, I mean, there's too many nutrients in the water. Trout can't. There's mortality in 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 eggs that are incubating in the shingle they can only put up with so much nitrogen then they become toxic uh, then they become they die ironically that's the issue with nitrogen and drinking water for humans you know young women who are pregnant the babies can be affected by too much nitrogen in the water just they're quite vulnerable at that stage and there's a funny sort of link between fish and people in that regard and i guess the water take for irrigation also just compounds the issue you've got all this nitrogen in a less lower volume of water yeah that's exactly it if you take half the river and use it for intensive agriculture the rest the the byproduct of that intensive agriculture can end up back in the river it's it's less of an issue in our big braided rivers because they are big and they the water turnover from top to bottom is really quick but our estuaries seem to be where the water often hangs around and sort of sits for a bit, they seem to be where we're seeing the water quality effects. But Fish and Game and ECAN have just, Environment Canterbury, have just started looking into what's driving some of these coastal fishery failures, and we don't know much about it, and hopefully mm. in time we'll know a little bit more. I guess the big problem is is you've got a, a fishery which is purely recreational versus hydro developments we all want and need power farming it's you know a lot of people's livelihoods and food source and there's always going to be one side that wins isn't there i guess but that wasn't actually the intention of the legislation it's sort of it was probably always going to happen because that's the way it works but the government have recently actually changed quite a lot of the registra- legislation they've come up with this concept to mana y which basically means when resource management decision makers are making their decisions they have to put the needs of the river first community drinking water second and economics third which is quite a fundamental change i haven't actually seen it affect any consenting things quite yet but but and it's you know people might say it's just because you know labor and power at the moment they might be a bit more conservation minded but i think from what i've seen all of the political parties have come to the realization that freshwater is is not an unlimited resource and we've probably pushed it a bit far and um but you're right in terms of economy you know especially around here irrigation is absolutely the lifeblood of the community Mm. oddly my understanding is irrigation provides far more bangs for buck for water than hydropower does we all think of hydropower as being you know fundamental to new zealand's clean green image but irrigation actually provides far more income um and yeah we're just at a stage where we're having to confront some of these issues and uh, it is it's going to be hard and i'm not sure what where we're going to end up but mm. you are right that for years and years when i worked for fishing game we were arguing that the water stayed in the river for fishing which was entirely selfish from our perspective farmers were arguing that they wanted the water out of the river for irrigation and although they 
did claim it had national benefits, which it does. It was still a pretty selfish. We want water for us because we can use it. And for a while, that argument went back and forward. And, you know, sometimes the farmers won, sometimes the conservationists won. But what's changed in Canterbury lately is that community drinking water is starting to go downhill. And I think everyone understands that drinking safe drinking water is not a selfish, um, you know, wanting safe drinking water isn't selfish. It's a basic human right. Mm. And there are health consequences to having dodgy drinking water. And I think that's where all of the political parties are now saying, well, you know, we might disagree about whether fishing is more important than farming, but actually drinking water is sort of fundamental to human health and we, we can't ignore it. And I think that's where we're at now. Yeah, I, I find it shocking. You know, I was brought up in Christchurch and the water was just beautiful. You know, you knew it had been filtered through yeah. the underground aquifers and there was nothing added to it and now you come down here and it tastes terrible you know canterbury how could this be but it's just happened over 30 years isn't it yeah i guess it's sort of it's not i mean i started working for fishing game in the early 90s and we were certainly talking we weren't really frankly too concerned about drinking water we didn't it wasn't our responsibility but in a way some of what's happened to our fisheries has been predictable but um yeah but equally i mean yeah, we lived near Darfield. Before irrigation, Darfield was just a tiny little town, and now it's thriving. Ashburton's thriving. Rakaia's thriving. You know, it's it has transformed the economy. And, and, you know, when I go around the supermarket and look what's in my trolley, it's still cream and butter and milk and ice cream and That's yogurt. True. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's easy to sit back and be fundamental about it. But mm. the reality is we all enjoy that. We all enjoy that having a more affluent economy and we, we we certainly consume the product so it's not straightforward but um i've always had this view and i think it's where we're going is that each catchment can handle a certain amount of intensification and if you just wait for <clears throat> if you just wait for farmers to make land use decisions with without taking that into perspective you're going to end up in a bit of a mess so like the hiranui yr catchment is in a bit of a mess because it's a relatively small they're small rivers with lots of intensification around them. There's, there's a sort of a mantra in environmental discussions saying the solution to pollution is dilution. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you've got lots of intensification, but you've got lots of water flushing out to sea every five minutes, um, you seem to get away with it. But in catchments <clears throat> like the Hiranui and the Waia, which don't have that snow-fed sort of alpine yep. catchment, in the middle of summer, they get really low and all the intensification rolls in and it's not surprising you get problems. Mm. I, think, I think the other thing that we haven't even started to think about is what's the impact of all the stuff going into the ocean? Because we've always thought that once it gets to the ocean, it's out of mind, out of sight. But And maybe Canterbury with a relatively sterile sort of ocean with lots of sediment and stuff might get away with it. But some of the stuff you're seeing around the Hauraki Gulf with Snapper and it's sort of hinting that land use and especially up there urban sprawl is starting to have an effect on on oceans and mm. we just haven't thought about that here and we need to probably mm. Mm. you mentioned um briefly brown trout eating the native smolt what do you say to those that say we shouldn't have introduced species of brown trout in the rivers at all because of the damage they do to the native fish well, brown trout are the big bogey in terms of native fish. Um, 
that they live almost everywhere. They they're really widespread. There's almost nowhere brown trout can't get to, um, and they definitely eat lots of native fish. Um, I don't, you know, you could argue that the native fish that they eat were of biological interest and not really much of social interest. You know, most New Zealanders would never have seen some of these fish or wouldn't have any connection to some of these fish that, that brown trout eat. But I think... And just to, just to butt in, I mean, I often wonder that, you know, we, we make a big thing of our snails and, you know, the West Coast hills that most people have never even seen and the native fish that we must save them. And that is a, the counter argument. Um, are they that important? To yeah, that? no, I, I, I think the days of that argument that I just sort of described are probably over. I think we understand now that, that you know, having an intact biodiversity, it's not just about knowing that a little fish lives under a rock. You know, all of our systems are interconnected in a way we don't necessarily understand. So no, I think even you, you talk to people working in fishing game today and in the old days, native fish were trout food and today they're definitely not not considered in that way. The only argument I would say is that in the old days when we had largely intact habitats and good fresh water, we had far more trout and we had far more native fish. So you would argue that despite the fact that, you know, in the Selwyn Ellesmere system where we had tens and tens of thousands of tr trout, we still had quite robust native fish species because if if the habitat's good, it produces native fish and trout. And so oddly, you know, in the old days where we had far more trout, we actually had far more native fish. And it wasn't because the trout weren't eating the native fish, it was because the habitat was good. So, I mean, it's it's a fair argument to say that maybe we, sh we shouldn't have trout. But if you see you know, New Zealand tourism advertising overseas, there's always a picture of Milford Sound, there's always a picture of someone catching a trout. It, it's, it is part of our, it's now part of our culture, the association between... Um, you know, you can argue that if we didn't have fun stuff to do in New Zealand, all young Kiwis would go and live in London because there'd be nothing holding them back. So some of the non-native species that we have are now part of our culture, and it's not up to me to say that, um, you know, trout are more important than native fish. But clearly where trout are starting to cause native fish to go extinct or really threaten their viability, that's the point at which you know, I think trout have to take second place. But if we're just talking about trout consuming some of the surplus amongst the population of native fish, that's probably a happy place if, if they can coexist. And, mm. Um, mm. yeah, I mean, that's my thinking. Yeah. One other type of fishery which is near and dear to my heart is the blue cod fishery, especially in the Marlborough Sounds, but um, elsewhere in the country. We were talking this morning when I arrived at well, when I was a child, you know, we would go out and there was unlimited blue cod. And I hate to say it, but we would bring them home by the bucket full. And now we wonder, well, we don't wonder, but there's hardly any left. You know, you can go out now and not catch a cod in the Marlborough Sounds all day that's within the limit size. We've dropped the quota down to two per person with all the rules around it. Is there anything else that can be done about these fisheries or is it just a, a matter of the number of people fishing for them and they just don't have a chance? Um, 
blue cod are one of the few marine species where recreational people have really been a significant part of the decline of the fishery. In most places where there's blue cod near to population centres, the blue cod are struggling. Um, you know, Marlborough Sounds has been a bit of a cock case for a while, but we've got Mutanau, Moriraki, um, all over the place. Uh, apparently Jackson's Bay down in South Westland, it's getting hard, harder to catch cod than it used to be. Um, I think I think Ministry of Fisheries are doing the right thing. They're starting to to have much more. I mean, they used to be able to catch 30 of them in a day each, and um, I think that doesn't make much sense. Um, all they can do is really limit harvest and um, the old Kiwi thing of going away for the weekend and catching enough fish to put in the freezer the last six months. I think we have to get out of that mindset. The other thing, though, in the Marlborough Sounds that I worry a bit about is that the rules are so specific that to catch your two blue cod, you might catch 20 cod in total, and you can't pretend that catching 20 little cod on a great big hook is not having an effect on those fish. And so I guess... Absolutely, if, the shags that get half of them or more. Exactly. So I guess if anything, you know, and I haven't had much involvement with marine fisheries, but if anything, they need to look at total mortality and if if you're killing 10 little ones to catch two big ones, I'm not sure that's actually a net gain to the fishery. You're probably, it might have been better going back to the way it was in the old days. But um, yeah, sometimes those slot limits or size limits have an unintended consequence. Like with duck, when we used, when I was at Fishing Game, we managed duck shooting. And if you had a limit bag of ducks of, say, 50, that most people would never get close to, They'd go shooting till they were sick of it, then they or hungry or cold, they'd come home. If you have a limit bag of 15 and someone's got 13, they're going to hang in there and shoot those last two to get their blimmin' limit bag. And so limit bags and size limits can become, they can be conservation measures, but they can actually also become targets and aspirational, mm. you know. So people, if I shoot those last two ducks, I've, I've, I've had the perfect day. Mm. If I catch my third cod, I can go home and back to the pub or whatever and say I've caught my limit. And so you have to be careful with how they set those rules. And basically humans are incredibly adaptive. And if we change the rule, often people look at a fishery or a resource and say, well, if we stop 20% of the harvest or stop the harvest from here, we'll fix a problem. But people adapt. And so if you stop, if you put a marine reserve out in front of a certain headland, people might fish twice as hard on each side of it and you might not necessarily have achieved much. And yeah. and so people are very clever at working their way around, not intentionally trying to break rules, but you have mm. to, you can't expect behaviour to stay the same if you change a rule. People will adapt and, and you might have unintended consequences. And I, the blue cod fishery to me still looks, you know, it worries me. I don't know how it will recover if people are going and killing heaps and heaps of little fish to catch their big fish. It just mm. seems shutting it all together or opening it all together may make more sense. Mm. Mm. Did you always know that your professional career was going to go in the fishing and hunting direction? Was that a given from when you were 10? Um, well, when I went to university, it was really hard to get jobs in natural resources. Um, it's quite easy now because the local regional councils and everyone seems to need biologists and ecologists and environmental people. But in my day... Like almost all of my graduating class 
I can't think, there's only two or three of us who actually ended up in natural resource management. Um, and I, I, I guess I'd always wanted to work for Fish and Game, but when I started, there was four field staff, that's what I became. In North Canterbury? In North Canterbury, sorry. And they were all retiring, no, three of the four were retiring, and they'd all the ones who were retiring had all been there like 30 years. So the chance of getting it, when they advertised a job, it was the first time in my lifetime I'd ever seen a job advertised. So I guess I'd always wanted to do it, but didn't really expect to have the chance. Whereas nowadays, you know, when fishing game advertised for people, they, I wouldn't say they struggle to find staff, but they used to have their pick of them because um, there were so few jobs in that field. But now, far more employment opportunities, you know, so like everyone, they it's probably easier to get into that field now. But no, I was always keen, but there are some, there's downsides with having your sport so closely linked to your career. You know, it's, when I look. Never get away from it. Yeah. And when I looked at people who worked for Fishing Game, typically they went in as mad keen hunters or fishers or both and retired having given up both sports years ago because yeah. they just go fishing and people ask them questions about stuff and it ruined their day. So they go and, take up something different. So having a hobby and a career closely aligned is, you know, it doesn't always work for everybody. And, and I never really quite, I never lost the the passion for fishing and hunting, but most, it'd be fair to say, a lot of my colleagues did. Mm. Mm. So you worked for Fish and Game for 20 years, is that right? Fish? Yeah, no, about probably yeah, 25, I guess, yeah. And a field officer for... Half of it, yeah, Hirsch and North Canterbury manager for the rest, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, no, about half in the field and half as a manager, yeah. Mm. So, what just tell us a wee bit about the your job at Fish and Game? What, what did it tend to involve? Is it promotion, enforcement, management, mingling with the public, all of the above? Yeah, so Fish and Game, we had four staff in our area and it tend, you tended to be a, a generalist. Like in a bigger organisation like Department of Conservation or something or Ministry of Fisheries, you'd have compliance people and you'd have biodiversity people and you'd have these, but fish and game people tended to do a bit of everything. So we did law enforcement, we did fisheries monitoring, we did public relations, you know, talking to fishing clubs and stuff. And in a way that was an attractive part of the job that you you got exposure to a whole lot of different, um, whole lot of different disciplines, and and um, it's funny because when I first started, we just started this program of trying to monitor our <clears throat> the number of salmon that, <clears throat> excuse me, that got past the fishermen and spawned in the headwaters as a measure of salmon productivity. And a guy from Niwa came up with a study that we'd fly around the spawning streams in this little helicopter about. I think we did it five times, it was probably about 50 hours of flying each year, and oh, maybe not that much, 30 hours of flying each year in this thing, and it was, you couldn't believe that you're getting paid to tear around the hills in this little helicopter with the door off, you know, but after about 50 trips on bumpy days, and mm. little helicopters are hot, and yeah, you got sick of it, and and you you actually get sick of everything, yeah. and the, the good thing about fishing game was the diversity of the work, you know, mm. it, you you would do that you know, you'd do a couple of those trips a year, spread them out amongst the staff, the helicopter trips, and, and you had a range of things that, that kept you interested, I guess. Mm. Mm. Sometimes it seems to me that 
um, there can be a bit of a conflict in interest because in the whole publicity thing of getting kids fishing and more and more people out there enjoying the resource, there must be a limit where, hang on, we don't want too many more people because it's ruining the resource. How, how does that conflict work? With yeah. So there's two aspects going on. Firstly, New Zealand, when they set up the system for managing freshwater fish in particular, they wanted to make it different to the UK where all of the resources were captured by largely a handful of quite wealthy people. So in, a, in the UK, if you own a, an estate next to a salmon stream, you effectively own that fishing. Yeah. And New Zealand deliberately wanted to make it available to everybody. And, and most of the management was underpinned by this, by this principle that part, so part of the publicity was saying to any person on the street, um, you're welcome to take part in this and we encourage you to take part. And that was quite a genuine part of the publicity that it was prevent it from being elite. But the other the other side of it is, if you, as you say, if you have too many people, some some resources start to become degraded. And, and we, I guess at some point, we probably didn't see that coming Um because fishing game was funded solely from license sales, so the more licenses we sold, the more money we had to do stuff. So, it, is it funded differently now? No, it's still the still same. Still the same. Yeah, I mean, there's odd little bits of income coming, but that's the way it's funded. And so, in a way, if you shut like the salmon fishery, where they've severely restricted angling, you know, their license sales have dropped as well. And so, you mm. get in a bit of a catch twenty two. Yeah. You've got less money to spend protecting what you've got left, and. Um, but, but there are places in New Zealand where they've started to say there's enough people. Some of our sensitive backcountry fisheries have gone to a ballot system or a booking system. Mm. It doesn't tend to cost anything to take part, but you have to, it's to try to restrict numbers to some extent. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I still think fundamentally keeping us as a system where every member of the public is entitled for a relative, I mean, it's... A license it seems expensive if you go fishing one day a year, but if it's your, if you go fishing every day, you know, if it's your main hobby, it's not an overly expensive sport. I agree. I think it's a fantastic thing we have in New Zealand. Um, Two hundred bucks, you know, it's cheap as chips. I think even if you go three or four times, it's very cheap compared to most other <laughs> recreational pursuits. Yeah, and that that. There's still a real sense within fishing game that that's their job, and that's mm. you know they they you know most of the places you go in the world, money buys you better fishing. You know, like mm. places like Russia are just a, you know there's some fantastic salmon fishing in Russia that you have to be a gazillionaire to get at, and all around is abject poverty. The local people can't get anywhere near the rivers to catch a fish to eat, and um, and yet you know we we've we've been striving for a long time to avoid going down that route. Is there a noticeable increase in anti-fishing or or people with anti-fishing, anti-hunting motivations as the modern world sort of becomes more woke, you know, to use a a new term? Yeah, we saw that in in duck hunting, waterfowl hunting. We when I in the early nineties we had a protest group come out and try to argue that duck hunting was cruel. And, you know, at the coalface, fishing and hunting where you harvest things, there is an element of animal suffering, clearly. Um, you, know, you know, we live in a rural community. There's certainly 
an element of suffering in the lamb chops you buy at the supermarket as well. Um, but interestingly, the anti-waterfowl hunting thing just didn't catch on in New Zealand because the mainstream population mm. seemed, where, even if you didn't fish or hunt yourself, chances are you knew someone who did or you, you had a family who had. Or And in Australia, duck hunting for a while was almost shut down because Australia's, we don't think of it as such, but Australia's quite an urban country. Most of the people live in big cities and the, the notion of the old fella on the outback on a horse is actually not that, you know, they're not that significant a chunk of the Australian population. But in New Zealand, we all seem to have either live, have access to the, I don't know, rural environment, or we know people who do. And so the anti yeah. thing didn't really catch on. Mm. Um, and we've all been brought up with it as children. It's sort of in our DNA yeah. that this is what you do as kids, isn't it? Yeah, it's funny though, but. Um, the only place we get a bit of grief, ironically, is around, or I used to get a bit of grief, was around catch and release because mm. hunting or shoot or fishing to catch something to eat is pretty much part of, you know, whether you buy it from a supermarket or you shoot it on a hill, it's sort of the same process. Yeah. But toying with something and wearing it out, letting or it... our own pleasure. Uh, yeah, that, that's the... That's the place where fishing game and anglers are a little bit exposed, I've got to say. Mm. But again, in New Zealand, it hasn't, you know, we argue that it, you know, in certain places, it's important to preserve the um, experience. But most of the places you go, it's fine to catch a fish and take it home and eat it. And so it hasn't really, that anti-protest thing hasn't really taken off in New Zealand. But who knows, it could in the future. Mm. Mm. Let's hope not. Mm. When you're in that role, what would get you inspired or excited or really motivated about it? You know, what was the thing that would you would get out of the morning and be rearing to go? Um, certainly, once I became a manager, where you tended to get a whole lot of emails complaining about stuff, the thing that really got me focused again was going out with the staff, checking licences, or going to places where you come across anglers or hunters in the field and invariably they would be you're doing a great job we're having a great time if you sit in the office you tend to just get the squeaky wheel stuff because most people don't write in and say you're doing a great job no. thank you yeah. um but when you went out in the field and actually came across people who who said oh, you come across foreigners who say can't believe how good how good you've got it here i can't believe how little i pay for a license or how easy you know how by comparison with overseas fisheries, how accessible everything was. Yep. And so I guess that was the, I mean, there's a thing in business where they talk about managers should spend time on the front desk, which means if you if you sell widgets, you should spend some time at the counter dealing with the people who are buying your widgets because you get a sense, a much better sense of the position of your business. And I certainly found with Fishing Game, when you went out and you came across people in the field, you know, young kids caught their first fish or, mm. you know, because in my day, you tended to get, you know, if you didn't catch a limit bag of salmon, I'm not saying I always did, but if you didn't, you'd always go home thinking, oh, you know. That, was such a good day. No, <laughs> it was, with hindsight, that was nuts. But then you come across someone who's caught, who's caught their first ever one and it absolutely, you know, it was life-changing or, or a a significant moment in their life and you you really get that that you know the work is producing something worthwhile at the yeah. end so that was a thing for me yeah and the the balancing question to that 
what was it that would get you fired up and angry and if anything? Well, when I was a manager, I worked for an elected council of fishermen and hunters and they were unpaid volunteers who were giving their time willingly to help. But it was a bit like working for a club or, a, you know, it was at times we had, um, at times it was quite difficult. We had a statutory responsibility to manage Canada geese as an example, to certain limits, certain population limits, because they have an impact on the rural community. And we would have some of our own people out sort of protesting our, our attempts to control the population and stuff. And some of that stuff was pretty heartbreaking because you could, where it ended up was Canada Geese Management got taken off fish and game because we couldn't effectively control our own people. Um, okay. And that was... And put in the hands of who? Um, they're just an un... <clears throat> uncontrolled. They're uncontrolled. They're not quite a pest. They're sort of just the status uncontrolled and, you know, people can kill them anyhow or anywhere. Mm. Um, I mean, that was quite confronting just because you... But, you know, the fishing and hunting are things that really fire up people's passions mm. and some people, you know, some people... That, that affects behaviour in a way that's often a bit disappointing. But, I mean, that was just, you knew it was part of the job and, um, you know, you just have to learn to live with that. And, mm. yeah. Can we talk about your illness? And sure. it, maybe that's the wrong term. It's it's an infection you got, I think. Was it that more of a correct term? Yeah, that's... Rather than the rather than an illness or a disease, but. yeah, well, it probably is a disease. Well, whatever, it, mm. it's a result of a of an infection, which is sort of the result of an accident. But it all it all merges into one yeah, in yeah. hospital, really. It's a funny thing, and I don't know how you feel about it. But when you put Ross Millerchamp into Google before two thousand and eight, there would have been a lot of stuff to do with your writing and mm. articles and um, involvement with fish and game. Now when you put Ross Millichamp into Google, there's a lot of reports about man who survived the flesh-eating mm. disease. Yeah. Does that feel a bit a bit strange or Yeah, just... I suppose it I suppose it does. I mean it's there's something about disabilities that end up with bits of the body missing that seem to fascinate the media really i mean mm. there's lots of young people end up in wheelchairs and it doesn't seem to be as interesting i suppose but um but i mean that's just that's and, what and it I, is i think it's something about you know the term flesh-eating disease is always used um and i'm going to say the actual name wrong ne necrotizing fasciitis yeah, that's the, that's the that's the name of the, what the medical people call it. Yeah, yeah I mean that's not so exciting. <laughs> um, I guess you, like the rest of us, probably didn't know anything about that before two thousand eight or very little. Well, my wife's a medical scientist, and when she was told I had it, when when she arrived at the hospital when things were grim, um, she thought that was just something you saw on on television dramas about hospitals you know like it was it's one of those things that's uh um it's interesting because it's rare and it's so catastrophic but mm. it's um um you know i i'm not sure that i would have been aware of it um certainly not aware of how 
you become victim to it or what the consequences are. It's just, it, yeah. Um, so what is it? How do you catch it? So it's a form of bacteria that's not overly uncommon. Um, it lives on, generally on, it's found often on your skin. And you can, typically you become infected by it by getting an injury which causes the bacteria to be introduced into your bloodstream from your skin. Um, and then the path or the, the way the disease affects you is that your immune system tries, like all bacterial infections, your immune system tries to fight it off. And and on some occasions it succeeds, and on other occasions your immune system is overwhelmed by the um, bacteria. But the, the flesh-eating part of it is because it travels through your body between the layers of your skin, and um, skin is sort of, tissue is sort of, destroyed as it goes through um, and often to remove the the treatment is to cut out the infected tissue and so I guess you know tissue gets lost as a result but I'm I'm not sure I fully understand where the name came from mm. but um, it's so in my case it got into my bloodstream and I got <clears throat> sort of unwell and then I got terribly unwell and in order to keep you alive, they they absolutely overwhelm you with antibiotics because of antibiotics are the treatment for bacteria. But they usually at the time you present to a hospital or wherever, they don't know exactly which bacteria you've got. So it's always a bit of a lucky dip what you get given in the really critical time. And in my case, I got terribly unwell which meant I went into septic shock which is when your body starts sort of shutting down um, everything's overwhelmed by the bacteria and in order to keep you alive they put you into a coma and absolutely um, drown you in antibiotics and treatment and um, most of the disabilities I've got are a consequence of being in a state where I didn't have adequate blood supply to my hands and my feet because in order to keep you alive they have to prioritize your your brain and your mm. central body organ so rather than the infection damaging the tissue itself it was a sort of byproduct of your body protecting the core item yeah yeah i mean that's the basis of it i mean um i mean in the old days people just would have been overwhelmed mm. by it and um but nowadays, with you know, obviously medical treatment is um, much more advanced. But plenty of people still become infected by it and die quite quickly. You know, the mortality rate's quite high. Twenty percent, is that right? Ish. Yeah. I'm not sure, yeah. but it's 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 um, and of the people that go into septic shock, it's probably worse than that. But mm. um, it's, it's hard to understand, not from someone who knows nothing about it, but. Um, it's so rare, a few dozen cases a year. If it's on your skin and everyone's getting cuts all the time, it's hard to understand why it, why it is so rare. Yeah, I. one of the frustrations for me is I really wanted, having a science sort of background, I really wanted to know what had happened in mm. a series of events and what mistakes I'd made, like exactly. maybe I hadn't washed my hands or maybe I'd you know, done something. And all of the advice is you'll never find out, mm. wrong place, wrong time bad luck yeah. and and 
from medics who normally speak with such precision and such knowledge, that's a little bit, I don't know, I find that a little bit um, just incomplete, you know, because mm. almost everything else, they can give you far more detail than you can comprehend or digest. But in this case, it's, I don't know. Really that, frustrating, especially because it's had such lifelong consequences. Yeah, but <laughs> it's, they're not being flippant. That's just the reality. And I mean, the worst, the most, the best known sort of bacterial um bacterial infection thing that affects people and we don't understand is meningitis where kids can have typically kids or teenagers can have the bacteria living somewhere in their throat and it can just live there and then one day switch on and and really affect them and nobody understands how that works and mm. um you know but i'd love to know but everyone just says you'll never know you'll never know <laughs> i mm. find that a bit <laughs> underwhelming but um you know i'm sure they're being Straight up with that. So. Yeah. What were the circumstances around you catching this? Um, so I was on a hunting trip on Stewart Island, and I, I'm not. I had on the, around the, my lower fingers on my left hand. I had some cuts that ultimately they thought was where the infection had got in. Um, I'd been fishing for blue cod and stuff, and I had a few cuts on my hand from unhooking fish or cutting bait. As you do. Yeah. And they believed that was the way it got in, but the alternate is that it got in through a sandfly bite. And, um, you know, when I was looking to try and find out what I did wrong, you know, try and go to Stewart Island and not get, in by, get bitten by a sandfly, it's, that's the randomness of it. But I just felt unwell, like I thought I had a cold, and then I got... Over time or, or a short period of time? So the typical time from infection to going into septic shock, if that's the case, is usually just a few days, like two or three days. But in my case, it was longer. Um, I think I was unwell for five or six, maybe seven days. Um, so unwell that you couldn't go out fishing? And Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the first day I just felt a bit seedy and... And then I got to the point where I was in bed for a couple of days. And at that point, I don't remember a lot of it because when I, as soon as I got to hospital, I was effectively put into a induced coma and didn't wake up for a month. So what happened immediately beforehand has become a bit vague. But my friends who were with me said that, you know, I was just sort of sick, like I had a cold or a flu. And then for a couple of days, I got really unwell. And They were probably all calling you soft. Yeah, they sort of did. <laughs> um, but um, anyway, we were due to come out off this. We were on a hunting block on Stewart Island where you just get a boat to pick you up and drop you off and there's no one else comes or goes. And we were due to leave, say, tomorrow. And on today I, I got on the mountain radio and decided I needed to get off Stewart Island. And I... The heli they sent a helicopter, they were very good. I thought it was going to be a big, I was going to have to talk them into it, you know, because I still wasn't immobile or whatever. But they sent someone over and picked me up in a helicopter. And um, all of my friends thought I was, that's where they did think I was being a bit soft because we were due to go out the next day. Yeah. And as we left in the helicopter, the boat to pick us up came into the bay the night before to save the ferry across in the dark. And... Um, and they did think it was a bit odd to go off in a helicopter. In fact, when I, when they got back to the mainland, 
about 24 hours later, they rang my wife, tried to ring me, rang my wife and said, I will pick Ross up and take him home with us. And <laughs> my wife said, you no, know, you I was, won't. <laughs> I was already in intensive care in Christchurch and I was in a bad way. But, um, um, yeah, I don't remember so much. All I remember is thinking I need to get off out of here. And one of the medics later said, if you'd stayed the night, you would have been dead in your bed the next day. Cause, wow. um, and it's hard to know. Everyone congratulated me on my on my decision to do it, but I'm not sure to, to ask to be evacuated. But in the haze of what went on, I, I'm i not entirely sure it was that well thought out. I just No, but you must have sent... I mean, you know your own body, don't you? And you must have sensed there's something more than... Yeah. Or... Well, I mean, I'm not the sort of person. I mean, I'm the sort of person who would think I'll be going out tomorrow or wait. But yeah. you know, something said, "No, you need to get out of here now." And mm. I don't know why, but anyway, that turned out to be quite um, important in the whole scheme of things. For sure. Yeah. So they took you to Invercargill. Yeah. So they flew me to Invercargill, and I, you know, I, I wasn't in a stretcher or an oxygen anything, and I got to Invercargill, and they were, weren't particularly busy, but they weren't. They really couldn't see that I was terribly unwell, I guess. I mean, mm. they knew I had something wrong with me, but they stuck me in a room and they did all the standard blood pressure and oxygen rate tests and all this stuff. And they were saying, yeah, we're not really sure what's wrong, but, you know, someone come by and we will and have a look at you. And a couple of hours later, they, they did come back and forth a lot and keep doing tests and um, whatever. And I'm on the view that if I'd been a local, they probably might have sent me home and told me to come back the next day. But because I'd just come from Stewart Island and I was sort of marooned there, they gave me a room and stuck me in a room. And then, I don't know, a couple of hours after I got there, all of a sudden they got really interested. And that sounds like a criticism, but clear, and I don't remember much of it, but all of a sudden stuff started to happen. And clearly whatever they'd been monitoring started to deteriorate really quickly. And that's mm. classic when you go into septic shock you sort of just crash and yep. sometimes people who go who go through that in a hospital before they get anything done the person has died it's it's really uncontrolled sort of decline in your health and um they got really really busy all of a sudden and and i don't remember anything after that i remember being told i was going into surgery middle of the night or first thing in the morning or something and yeah i don't I woke up a month later in intensive care in Christchurch and missed it all, you know, and I don't I don't really remember the sequence of events over that. But shortly, so the next morning they did surgery. My wife came down from Christchurch to Invercargill and got told, well, he's going back to Christchurch. So they, they medevaced me in an air ambulance back to Christchurch intensive care because whatever was they didn't really have the resources in Invercargill to deal with something like that. And, and the surgery they did was to cut away the flesh that had been infected? Yeah, so the treatment is effectively to remove the infected flesh with the hope of stopping the the spread, yeah. I guess. And yeah. so they carved it. And it was in your arms? Yeah, both my arms. I, I, no, no, it was mostly in my left arm, sorry. Um, and But I've got lots of, scars from subsequent surgeries where they where they did other stuff but no mm. principally it was in my arm and in my lower torso they went and mm. cut flesh out and um it sounds it's probably a bit more precise than that um and the normal sequence is they you go into surgery they remove infected flesh 
put you back in the ward. Sometimes they put you into a hyperbaric chamber, like a, the thing where they put divers who yep. <clears throat> had too much nitrogen or whatever and got too much nitrogen in their blood. And they do that to stimulate your blood flow. Then they get you a bit better and they put you back into surgery. And normally you go in the cycle of it. But I was so unwell that after the first surgery, they really couldn't get me out of intensive care to do any of the other stuff. And luckily the surgeons and and Invercargill just did a stellar job and removed almost all of um, the infected tissue in the first go because if I'd had to go back in, I mean, I remember going back for surgery. It's the first surgery I consciously remember going into. It must have been five weeks after. I was, I'd, I'd, I was back in Christchurch. I, I was conscious and they said, oh, we need to tidy up some bits and pieces and they wheeled me down to out of intensive care to the surgery and to the ward and they sent me back and said you're not well enough for surgery and that was ages after first being admitted so um you know so i was lucky that the surgery they did in invercargill was mm. pretty much perfect i think do you remember when you woke up in christchurch do you remember um if you asked what happened or where you are or um well my wife said i woke up a number of times like before they amputated my lower legs they they can bring you in and out of consciousness a bit. And they, they said that they woke me up and sort of told me and then, and I don't remember any of that. I, I mean, I probably woke, I was probably conscious a number of times before I actually sort of got my faculties back, I guess. Mm. But um, What's your first memory? Um, I just remember time and time, like when the way they wake you up, if that's the word, or they take you out of a... The, main, the reason they put you in a coma is to put you on life support because they can't have you on a breathing machine if you're, if you're conscious. It just doesn't work. So almost all of the, the sort of coma, the idea of a coma is, is to allow them to completely run your body, basically. Mm. And, um, um, but the way they do that is they give you a stonking amount of pretty nasty medications and, and anaesthetics. And when you come out of the... When you come off those, it's it takes a while before you get your stream of consciousness back. So you go through these cycles where you you're unconscious and you have these terrible sort of hallucinations, and it's really common when you it's like a heroin addict giving up heroin, mm. and you wake up and you the person over you says, "Don't worry, you're safe. You're in intensive care in Christchurch Hospital." And I've got told that heaps of times because clearly people don't. People wake up and think, where am I? What's happened? And I just got told that hundreds of times. Every time I woke up, don't worry, you're safe. You're in intensive care in Christchurch. You know, you're fine, whatever. And that's, I just remember that happening mm. many, many times. And that's the, yeah, I can't remember which time I actually, it took hold. But um, you go in this cycle where you have these terrible hallucinations and you've really got no idea where you are. And then you wake up and you're in a ward and then, and you think, ah, oh. and then you feel yourself slopping straight back into it again, and you know, oh, here it comes, and then the hallucinations just are so vivid and sort of real that even though you know you're hallucinating, you still believe every bit. It just goes round in circles, but um, it's a really common hmm. response to having been in a medically induced coma for a long period of time, and it's it's sort of an inevitable thing you have to go through and uh, for me it was the most traumatic thing because you just constantly you know you, you don't know where you are then you do know it just goes on and on and on but yeah. um but and 
the whole time um, y- y- you could have died at any time? How close to death were um, you during that So month? apparently there was, like, the first sort of 24, 48 hours in Christchurch, I was really, really unwell. And, you know, my wife worked in the hospital at the time, and, and she said, you know, I was probably the sickest person in the hospital, if not the country at the time, you know. But after that, they... You know, I guess the conclusion was I would survive, but it doesn't take much when you're that fragile to tip you over. You know, I yeah. I don't really understand. They don't really talk about that stuff with you a lot. But, um, I mean, I I was on, you know, when you fill in a, when you apply for a, a flight medical, you have to tick all these boxes. Have you ever had this, that, and the other? And I had to tick just about all of them because I'd been, I'd had kidney failure. I'd been on. You know, almost all of my organs have been under stress at some point and had technically been um, in trouble. And so, you know, any small thing can happen in it. And it, yeah, but I'm not sure how close, how at risk I was a week out. But um, yeah, it's, yeah, don't know if I need to go and investigate that. <laughs> can you talk about your recovery a little bit? How long were you in hospital for and recovering for before you came back home? Uh, so I was five. A bit over five months in hospital. The first month was in intensive care, which is a long time in intensive care. Like the typical stay in intensive care is like less than 24 hours apparently. And so, um, and I got home after five months only because... It's a long time, isn't mm, it? But only because we lived in, we lived really close to the hospital. Like we lived about two k's from the hospital and we were in Miraval, which is surrounded by health practitioners and private hospitals and it's sort of a, a semi-medical hub of Christchurch anyway. If I'd been living in the country, I would have been months more before they let me home because I was too far away from mm. care. But no, I was five months in hospital. I was about, it was about um, eight or nine months before. So when I came out of hospital, I was three or four months in a wheelchair. Um, At what point were your legs amputated? In that first month, was it? Oh, yeah. They, so I don't remember it. Um, it was in the first couple of weeks. Um, so basically what happens is they stabilise your, all your important um, bits and bobs. And and then the bits that have been starved of blood, it takes a while before they really know whether they're going to recover or not. And so they, in my case, they had, they amputated the legs below the knees, which is really significant for getting around in the outdoors and stuff. If you lose your knees and your ankles, it's really hard. Mm. But even when they did that, they thought, oh, we might have to go back and amputate higher up because the tissue the tissue that we left might not be viable. Um, and so I guess they need to wait to see how 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 far down the leg and the, the tissue has sort of got no hope of recovery. But equally, um, lots of people go through multiple amputations where they do it low down to give you the best chance of yeah. recovery, but then they conclude that actually they're going to have to, the tissue down there isn't viable. So they amputated below the knee, but they did prepare the family for the fact they might have to go back. But luckily, um, you know, I don't think, being relatively fit and healthy prevented me, made much difference in terms of me getting the infection, but certainly in the recovery it was 
made a big difference. So, mm. yeah, I've recovered relatively quickly, I guess. Relatively being the operative word. Well, in, in relation to how unwell I'd been, it was they, you know, when I turned the corner, I didn't have many setbacks and they they kept saying that, you know, this is going much better than we had feared, um, even though they sort of deal with that stuff relatively often, but commonly, but they, they did keep sending the message that things were really grim for a while, but the outcome is probably better than we would have hoped for. And that, that's the dilemma for them. You know, you wonder at some point, you know, families start to talk about, you know, would the, would the person really want to live or die faced with these consequences? And the medical professions say, oh, we can't really, we can never work out where people are going to end up. And there's always the odd one that does much better than we think that yeah. justifies <clears throat> everything else we do and you know in my case they kept saying oh no you're doing much better than we had thought um so yeah i mean that's i don't know how they it must be tough making those decisions mm. for them but um pretty much they just keep working until there's nothing left to work on because they never know what the outcome's going to yeah. be so yeah. getting back to your first memories do you remember the first time you realized you had no legs yeah, I, well, I remember. I remember not being particularly perturbed about it, which okay. is a curious, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it reflects either the fact that I've been told before and I've forgotten, and it was somewhere back in my memory. But mm. more significantly, just I was aware of how terribly unwell I was. Like, mm. I mean, it was sort of I wasn't surprised because it's not like. You have a one-off accident and they whip you into theatre and you come out and they've done stuff. It was, I don't remember being, you know, maybe I was such, such a low ebb, it just didn't surprise me and I don't remember being affected. And relatively recently I reread Douglas Barter's book, the World War II pilot who lost two legs in a flying crash actually. And he was, he was conscious and awake when they determined for a while they didn't know they are going to have to remove a leg or something and then eventually they did and they removed both. And he, he, his response was sort of the way I felt actually. It was, well, I've done something pretty serious. It's, I'm not surprised. And in a way that was my recollection of it. Um, yeah. Obviously the physical aspect is huge and the recovery is traumatic and long and ongoing What's the emotional and mental effect been on you? Um, well, I had, when you're immobile in a bed, you sort of, I had the psychiatrist come and talk to me because they always send people around to talk to you when, you know, you've, you've been through something and you've clearly got a lot more to go through. And this guy, you know, I wouldn't have asked for him, but he turned up and he was very good. And he said, you're going to constantly... It's not sort of depression in the sense of what affects some people in terms of their mental health, he said, but you will grieve for what you've lost. Mm. And he was dead right that you still you still go out and see stuff. And I, you know, like if I'm You fishing. mean grieve for what you've lost in terms of your previous life, how yeah. you could do things. Yeah, and... he just talked about it being a process of grief, not a process of depression, if, yeah. if that's the word. And that's true. Um, and in a way it's tough, but you've got something to blame. 
Whereas I think for a lot of mental health issues, you know, you get fit, successful, mm. capable people who suffer from mental health problems and they really, there's no explanation for why they're in that situation. And yet with with disability, you've clearly got something to, well, this happened and that's why. So in a way that takes some of the difficulty out of it. But no, you're constantly confronted by stuff that you used to, you used to do and now you can't and it, it doesn't entirely go away and like I've my hands aren't that great and the hands are what drive you nuts because there's no you know you, you use your hands for so much and yet you know your feet you understand that your prosthetic legs have got limitations but you, you know they are what they are whereas your hands are just constant like I'm always dropping glasses and breaking stuff and um you know the, there's just but but you do confront it a lot. But the interesting thing about the psychiatrist was he asked me what I wanted to do when I when I went back into the real world, and I said, I "Want to go fishing? I want to go hunting? I want to do everything I used to did do?" He rolled his eyes, did he? Well, in a way, he said, and I took it as a bit of an insult at the time. He said, "You might want to try some new stuff." And I think what he was, I thought what he was saying was, "You're never going to better do that other stuff, so don't try." But actually, what he was saying is. When you go and try that other stuff, the old stuff, you're always going to be comparing before and after. And no matter how much success you have, you're always going to say, yeah, but before my injuries, I could have done it better. And in a way, he was right that I, um, that every time I go fishing, um, you know, when I, and I want to walk across a bit of a stream to get to a pool I can see and I can't get across the stream, you're, you're confronted by it because you've got a real before and after yeah, thing yeah. to compare. Whereas, ironically, the thing that got me into flying, and in a way that it's been it's been really good for me, is because I didn't do it before. Mm. So I, I still have countless problems with the bloody pedals in the plane, but um, I'm not... That's con- always been like that. Yeah, yeah, and it's not like I used to be some hotshot who's now hopeless, you know, like you're not comparing before and after. And in a way, he was... I didn't quite... I couldn't quite see what he was getting at, but looking back, it was quite right. You know, mm-hmm. don't put yourself back in a situation where you're just trying to go back into your old life because it's there's healthy things to to retaining links, but equally, sometimes you've just got to let go of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think he was right in a weird sort of way. Yeah, I was wondering if you ever get to a point, and I, I'm sure it's different for every individual, where you forget that you've got artificial legs and your hands don't work as they as good as they used to mm. and this is just the way it is now or is every time you can't um, pick up a glass or drop a glass does that just make bring it all back for you well it, I wouldn't say it brings it all back but no I certainly haven't got to the stage where um, I certainly haven't got to the stage where I don't lament you yeah, know yeah. what I what I used to be able to do mm. um, and I I, some people do talk about you know before and after, and I I haven't been able to really mm. do that. I I still um, no, I'm constantly frustrated by stuff, and uh, and yeah, I, I'm not sure that it you know I'll ever sort of get out of that. I mean, one of the curious things is is when you dream. I never dream that I've got prosthetic legs. Wow, you know, and it's weird, isn't, isn't it? that funny? Yeah, but. Yeah, that's just, I'm always walking around doing stuff, and I just... It's so interesting, mm, isn't it? I don't know whether it's Wonder. healthy or unhealthy, but that's just... Yeah. 
I wonder if that'll ever change. Mm. Who knows? I mean, dreams don't really get reliable uh, <laughs> sort of indication of what's going on in the world. So, yeah. um, but it is curious that I yeah. yeah. When um, I was here last week, you mentioned the effects on um, partners and wives or husbands of people with disabilities. How's it been for your wife, Ginny? Well, it's been... I mean, when I was discharged from hospital after all those months, this nurse who'd been one of my primary nurses at Burwood where I ended up, you know, she gave me a hug and wished me the best and she gave my wife, Ginny, an even bigger hug and said, look after yourself, it's... It's often harder for the partners than it is for the patients. Everyone's focused on the patients, and especially when you've got an interesting, an interesting condition like I had. It's sort of there's almost a celebrity status in being, mm. you know, struck down by something unusual. But um, when I was at Burwood, I was I met a lot of people in wheelchairs who had lost their mobility, they'd lost their jobs and careers, <laughs> their, their relationships had broken up. They struggled financially because they couldn't work the way they used to. And, and along with becoming disabled came this flood of extra stuff. And I've been really lucky that, you know, we ha I haven't, I haven't, you know, I mean, I still grieve for um, my pre-infection pre um, mobility and stuff. But all the other stuff hasn't, you know, we've survived well. Um, but... Um, yeah, no, I'm aware that for some people it's it's a whole, it's not just one thing, it's everything comes at them in a great big flood. Mm, it's incredibly sad, isn't it, yeah. to have to go through that physical thing and then a whole life trauma of events. Yeah, on. and I hate to say it, but, you know, you do encounter, you know, that there's been a lot in the news lately. One of my friends is a lawyer in Wellington. He's just helped get some new legislation through the government. It's called a... It's a disability accessibility piece of legislation that when he first described it to me, I thought it meant wheelchairs for bu uh, wheelchair ramps for buses and, you know, easy access to government buildings. But it's much more about that. It's about accessibility to everyday life. And the reality is that, you know, people who are disabled tend to struggle for employment. They tend to struggle financially. They tend to, you know, that there's prejudice deliberate or otherwise, probably non-people non, um, don't believe they're being prejudiced. But when you look at, you know, the the health status, the financial stuff, all the all the facts of figures about people with disabilities, employment and stuff, it's it's clear that it's tougher. And, um, and you know, for some people it's grim. And I've, I've sort of, you know, even though I was very unwell and have got significant disabilities, I sort of haven't been... It hasn't been a whole of life thing like it has for some people. So yeah, I've been lucky in that regard. Do you look at yourself before 2008 and how you viewed people with disabilities and look back now and think how naive or uncaring you were? Like like I'm thinking now, you know, I'm not disabled and I don't know what it's like to be disabled. Do you sort of see yourself as two lights? Well, I'm certainly more empathetic to it. I mean, I, I've... I've, I've I probably, I mean, I, I, there's a lot talking about lived experience of disability. You know, there's quite a lot of sort of boards and stuff who are trying to get people with lived experience of disability, which indicates that it's different than just knowing the facts and figures about it, mm. I guess. Um, yeah, I, I certainly, when I look at people, I now, 
if I look at someone going past in a wheelchair, it's not, I, I have this think, oh God, I've been through something like I've been through, or they've had this life-changing thing, and I feel this empathy and sorrow about how they, you know, what's led them to be in that situation for sure. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it is hard to comprehend what it's like unless you've been there and done that, and mm. I think that's a reality. And thankfully, most people don't have to confront that because it's sort of, you know, it's not the thing you'd wished on your worst worst enemy. And um, but you know, it is it is what it is, and um, yeah, you just have to make the best of it. Mm. When we were talking on the phone, when I first called you up, I made a. Uh, probably a naive comment about how, you know, on face value, you're someone that seems to be dealing with this positively. Mm. Um, and you said, can't exactly remember the words, but something like, well, that might be a good observation, but it's quite different dealing with it day in, day out. And obviously you have days when you're not feeling 100% positive. Yeah, I, I, I mean, my mental health's pretty good. I, I, I've, Part of that is because we've had the, we were financially well set up. We, you know, I've had options. I can, you know, I haven't had that big tidal wave of stuff all happening. Um, but no, you don't, you, it certainly never goes away. And um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, it's still something you confront every day in an odd little time. And sometimes it just comes back and gets you when you're not expecting it. You know, you try and do something really straightforward. and and um, But it's, you know, you just have to, I mean, I, I don't know that I'm a, I mean, I'm a wee bit cynical about people who are so positive about every disastrous situation that they believe positive thinking is going to um, get them through everything. I think you just have to recognise that when, when you're having a bad day that it is temporary and you just have mm. to busy yourself doing something that's not too demanding and you know mm. and come back the next day and you'll you'll be better for it i guess and there's some you, you read of some people who go as far as to say i wouldn't go back now because mm. this whatever's happened this disability has opened up new doors and maybe changed their way of thinking on certain aspects of life and i'm pleased this has happened you know i've I don't buy that at all. Um, look, I accept that everyone has to deal with it in, in their own way. Um, but for me, I haven't, um, you know, it's not something I, I, I think I'm, you know, it's, I, I suppose you get more empathetic, but I think everyone gets more empathetic and more broad minded as they get older in terms yeah. of, you know, you encounter more situations and you learn from yeah, them. But, absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I certainly don't. I don't. I don't think I'm a better person. I don't think I'm. You know, I don't think my life. I don't think my outlook on life has changed that dramatically. It's not. It's not. That's not a. Um, certainly, I wouldn't. I'd be happy to trade it back. <laughs> I'm sure you would. Um, are there any benefits, or have you been involved in? motivational um, talks and visiting other people and going through similar situations? Did, did anyone come and talk to you when you were recovering and re recuperating? Yeah. Um, somebody from the Amputee Society asked Mark Ingalls to come and talk to me, and he just recently climbed Mount Everest. 
And um, I could hardly sit up in bed. And to be honest, no disrespect to Mark, it was probably a bit early and didn't really help much. He'd just climbed Mount Everest, you know. I, I, I couldn't, I had to be fed. My wife had to come and feed me breakfast every day. Mm. Um, but I have had a bit to do with Mark more recently now that, in a way, I went up to Hamlin recently and spent an afternoon with him just talking about how to set up prosthetic legs for walking in the hills and bumpy dumps. And it was really good. So, I mean, it, and he's been very helpful. But um, I, yeah, I, I'm now part of a group, amputee support group, where we go and visit new amputees in hospital and give them advice about stuff. But I, it wasn't something that was that bigger thing for me but I've always been a bit of a figure it out for myself sort of person and um, um, my wife had suggested actually after to one of her colleagues after the Christchurch earthquakes when there were quite a few new amputees created by being squished by things and she'd off, she said look we can go and talk to some of these people and one of the surgeons said you've got to be careful you don't sell unrealistic expectations to people you know we we're talking about some above knee amputees who life was going to be quite difficult um, yeah. and me going and saying you know I can walk around in the hills wasn't of much relevance to them so you have to sort of keep it real it has to be um, there are some basic mechanical um, barriers to doing certain things and um, yeah I I mean I'm happy to help people but it's um, sometimes you can do as much harm as you can do good you know it's, mm. um, I mm. There's a fine balance, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is, and I'm, you know, probably a, a clever psychologist or psychiatrist can probably deal with it better, I think. Because, yeah. I mean, I've got a very, I've had a very personal immersed experience with my situation, but it's, my wife would say it's N equals one, which is sample size of one. I know one situation incredibly, um, incre to a fine detail, but mm. outside of that, I don't have any more experience than you have, you know. Yeah. Do you get angry that this happened or do you ever think, why did this happen to me? And and I think I read that your father was a minister. Hmm. Do you, does God come into this and, you know, do you blame him or is it just random for you? No, I'm, I'm very relaxed about the randomness of it. When you spend a lot of time in hospital, you realise there's a whole lot of people in there with really rare stuff and oddly quite quickly after getting through the worst of it, you're no longer the sickest person or the most interesting case in hospital. And and oh, I'm I I'm very relaxed about the random nature of it and I you know if I'd done something stupid, like if I'd you know, I think if you'd if you'd ended up with a disability through some fault of your own, you know, through crashing crashing your car or something, and I'm not saying that I think you'd, it would probably be a bit tougher because you'd look back and say, oh, I was a silly idiot, I shouldn't have done this or that. In a way, I don't have any of that. It's just mm. been bad luck. You know, you did a you made a really good call getting off Stewart Island when you did, and, you know, I, I'd like to know what happened, but I don't, I'm relaxed about the fact that it was just bad luck, and yeah. that's, yeah, the way it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the easiest answer as well. I mean, it's just... It's out of your hands, isn't it? And it's something that happened. It is, yeah. But I mean, I'm not, you know, plenty of people end up with disabilities through car crashes or whatever where they must have some personal regret about it. I'm yeah. not saying that they should, but it's probably inevitable that mm. that comes with it. Um, whereas, 
um, I mean, getting back to that Douglas Barter story when he told he's lost his legs, he, I can't remember the words, but he was clear that he'd done something stupid in the aeroplane and crashed it, and it was sort of his fault. And um, and I didn't have any of that sort of guilt. It was just, you know, yeah. if anything, pat myself on the back for making the call to get off Stewart Island when I did. Um, but apart from that, it was sort of out of my hands. Mm. So where are you at now? You still go hunting and fishing? You, I think you said you go back to Stewart Island every year. Yeah, yeah, we did. We had a bit of a break for about four years after because it really killed the trip. You know, I, I left and all of my mates had the typical last night on the island party before they came off and they came back having had a great trip and, you know, a bit of a, bit of a, a bit sad about me having to leave, but I'd shot a few deer and had a good time. And I'd only lost, you know, a handful of days at the end, and then they get back and it's a that, bit of a spoiler, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, they were great. I mean, they were great. I remember one of my friends had said, and I don't remember much of it, but he said, "Oh, I went out hunting, and you were in bed, and your sleeping bag was absolutely drenched with sweat." So I gave you my sleeping bag, and I came back at the end of the day. And, we dried yours on the line. Mine was absolutely drenched in sweat. And I don't remember any of that. But, I mean, they were clearly, they were very kind to me and whatever. But um, we did have a few years where we didn't go back. It sort of just, and the first time we went back, we sailed around into the bay where we go. And I did wonder whether I was going to have these dark feelings mm. about my last few days in that place had been grim. And I just didn't have any of that. I just, I'd always liked the place and I'd probably been there. 10 times before and maybe 20 times since. I don't know. We go there a lot. And I didn't have any of that. So I, I really loved it. But it's, I mean, there's everybody as they get old, especially if you're into things like fishing and hunting, have to confront that you're not as good as you were when you were 25. You know, I mean, all of us go through, as we age, we, we can't do what we used to do in terms of outdoor stuff. But with disability, it happens overnight. You don't get 20, 30 years to gradually come around to the fact that yeah. walking on snow and ice is not really your thing. It all happens in a heartbeat. Um, and I have days where I you know, get in the... Like, Stewart Island isn't a great place for me because the undergrowth is all tangled and I'm always getting tangled up in it. But I just love being there and I just have to... Um, you know, I'm definitely less focused on, I always used to have to shoot a deer and I always wanted to shoot more deer than everyone and I just, that sort of competitive thing is completely gone now. I just, I'm there for the experience. Enjoy it. Yeah, it yeah. And, um, um, but, you know, I have, um, I so I, Stuart Island's an annual trip. Mm. Um, we, um, we have a, I have a series of those, we used to go sort of fishing and hunting at the drop of a hat, and now I tend to have these things that come up every year, every two years, and so no, I, I still really enjoy hunting. Um, fishing, um, I've done less salmon fishing, partly because the resource isn't as good, but walking around on riverbeds and in the water is probably one of the more difficult things, and lately I've found I've been doing more fishing out of boats than out of yeah. on the bank and you know you stand in a boat even if the boat's going up and down there's a nice flat place to put your feet there's something to hang on to so I've probably been doing more fishing with mates in boats than I have been walking up and down rivers but no I'm still caught a marlin last year with a mate in his boat and wow. we had a lot of fun you know halfway through it was just him and me on this boat we weren't really enough people and halfway through the fight 
I had this harness thing on, you put the rod into, and he came around and tied this big rope to the back of the harness because he thought I was going to be pulled over the pipe. Were you standing or in the chair? Uh, he sort of had a, he had a chair that wasn't, it was just a chair that sort of, it wasn't attached to the boat. It was sort of a chair you sat in in the boat, but it moved around with the boat. But anyway, but, uh, so I'm doing more of that. Mm. Um, yeah, we um, had a bit of a fitness thing last year and got fit enough and walked the Milford track at Christmas so that was far out it was a bit of a a bit of a hike but um yeah and, and when and, you and what did other people on the track you know with the comments or perceptions of yeah, you I doing was, this with artificial legs I was sort of surprised really because people said nothing and I really thought because the reality is if I walk around in a nice smooth floor the legs look like they're no different well, they look different, but they look to be just as functional as everyone else's. But when they passed me on the track groveling over rocks and things, yeah, they, they had a slightly more appreciation. But I, I think there is this thing with, with people with prosthetic legs that people presume that you just lose your legs for some tragic reason and they give you these other ones and it's just back to the way it was. And it's, I think that's true. I mean, that's what I think. You know, you, you learn to use the new ones. Sure, it's harder, but, um, yeah, you get used to it and... Yeah, I mean, mechanically, walking along the flat, I burn about, I think I probably burn nearly double the energy that you burn. Walking up a hill, it's, I, I'm, it always feels to me if I'm walking up a hill now that it used to feel when I was young, carrying a deer on my back, you know, like a really heavy pack on my back. That's sort of how it feels. You've got to be careful about every step. And mm. if you put your foot too far in front of you, you don't have enough strength to sort of, you know, to, to make the step. But... Equally, I mean, as we get older, you know, lots of my friends who are perfectly fit and healthy have started, you know, I've got friends who wouldn't contemplate walking the Milford track, not because they couldn't do it, but just because on balance it seems too hard, you know, um, too much misery or something. But I, you know, having little goals like that's been really useful for me. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you just need to, sitting at home stewing is not, you know, I always need to have an adventure on the horizon. All my mates who have become super busy now to go fishing and hunting all the time. We always, the trick at the end of the Stewart Island, before you leave Stewart Island or the Hollyford jet boating trip or one of these trips, you have to have the next one in the diary because you ha and it sustains you mm. in the long winter between trips or whatever. You need to have something to look forward to and something to focus on. And I've always, you know, I've, I've, that's been important to me, so... Um, we've got you know trips to Stewart Island book next year and the year after I think and that's that's how sort of um, keep yourself going really. Yeah, it's great. Mm. Is the prosthetic leg technology improving over the years? You, you see a lot about arms and robotic arms, and is it the same with legs, or are they more a mechanical type thing? Um, for above knee amputees, which I am. And not thankfully. Um, there's a lot of technology, computer technology and how the knee is operated. But um, for below knee amputees, there's been some changes. And I, for a while, I kept striving to find a pit of hardware that would fix everything. And I've come to the view that it, it just doesn't exist. I've got a relative, both my stumps are relatively short below the knee, which means there's a relatively small lever to work the rest of the leg and I've come to the view that um, I've come to the view that the stump length is a real limitation and that's not a something that could have been changed given 
how much tissue I I had that was affected. But when I look at people who appear to be more capable in the outdoors, invariably they've often got longer stumps and there's more. Right. So I've I've chased around trying to find perfect legs. At one point they did have me on some new high tech electronic legs with electronic ankles in them and they were like a hundred thousand us dollars per side per half and i agreed to trial them because i was the first person in new zealand anyway to trial these things and i was told as soon as they fitted them that if i got them wet they would die and that was all this money down the drain and they were just heavy and clunky and you had to charge the batteries and mm. they were just hopeless so mm. my main I've got a new set of hunting legs that have gone back to really simple. They just got a carbon fiber blade with a with a vibram sole glued on the bottom, and they're super super simple. But do you wear boots on top of them or, um, or not? Well, those ones I don't. Um, okay. Although I went hunting last week and I did, they did struggle a bit with them. They were just a bit too stiff and clunky. But um, now I've tended to move towards stuff that's light and simple, um, mm. and uh, the, I haven't seen great advancements to be honest um a lot of the advancements around people who are quite poorly mobile and often a bit of technology helps but when you get technology you usually get weight Mm. and you usually get um you sort of lose you lose some the freedom yeah but you also lose they become a bit unreliable in the outdoors because if they rely on something electronic they might that might die and that might be the end of it so no i haven't you do go through a constant cycle where the fit of your stump into the socket after a while just fails and you need to get new sockets made. <clears throat> so I think over your whole lifetime, the shape of your of your stump changes and I've just had a new set of sockets made for <clears throat> one of my legs and it's always a bit hard when you get a, a new set because they push on slightly different places and they hurt a bit, but um, it's just a constant. Because that's what takes the weight, isn't it, the, the socket around your stump? Yeah, so there's this myth that all of the weight is borne by the bottom of your stump and the stump gets a bit like a sole of a foot. It gets thick and sort of um, <clears throat> tough. But the reality is, no, the, the whole circumference of your stump bears your weight mm. equally so that it's spread around. And the skin tissue remains, has to remain sort of just quite thin and soft, not not hard like a heel of a foot. Yeah. What is it that keeps drawing you back to the outdoors? Is it is it spiritual? It's in your blood? Is it the challenge of shooting a stag? Um, I know I don't. It's certainly most people go through the stage where when they're young, they want to catch everything and shoot everything. And, and over time, you become more <coughs> sort of experience driven. I mean, it, for me, it's <clears throat> a lot of it's about the people you go with, like I've got friends who I really only see on hunting and fishing trips, and if I stopped, I would lose contact with them. Mm. Um, you do build connection with the places, like the place on Stewart Island where we go. I've been there heaps of times, and I, I there's something about the place that, um, that you know, it's, I've really gelled with. So I've, I've, um, you know, and it's sort of you go back to a place you've been to before. You've got this little spot, and your mate's got this other spot, and you sort of. There's also something about long trips to places like Stewart Island where you really do slow down. Like you can take all day to make a stew in the camp oven. And 
Which is a thing these days, you know, so what we're so busy and there's so much to do at yeah. work and you, if you do well, you get away for two or three or four, but, you know, you watch Willie Dooley on 10 days, you know, yeah. whoever does that. Yeah, well, that's, we had a friend join our group to Stuart Island a couple of trips ago and he'd done a lot of hunting. But he thought, at the start, he said, oh, I think we went for 11 or 12 days or something. He said, oh, it seems like a long time to me. And when we got back, he, I asked him how he thought it went. And he said, it's funny, at the start, I thought it seemed far too long. But by the end of it, I, I could have stayed for another week. You get yeah, in the rhythm yeah. of, of being on holiday and it takes a few days to switch off. And then in the lead up to going home, you start thinking about going home. You think about all, what you've got to do, what you've got to pack up. And inevitably, you start thinking about the big list of jobs that you've got to tackle when you get mm. home. And there is a sense that you need a decent length of time to disconnect from your life. And, and I, I'm very much of that, even though I don't always have a big list of jobs to come home to. I really, I like the, 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 you know, the length of time to allow you to separate from your normal life and then ultimately to return to it. Yeah. Do you think modern children are losing the option to go out in the outdoors and do these things with, you know, everyone's on computers and tablets? Or is that just not quite the case? Well, I'm critical of young people on tablets all the time, but I'm sure if I was their age and had access to it, I would be exactly the same. It's not sort of a fault thing. It's just, no, I'm not blaming yeah. them. I'm just saying that's sort of the nature of society now, and it seems sad that, you know, the avid outdoorsman like yourself is, is maybe a thing of the past. Yeah, I guess. I mean, when we did the Milford Track, I, we did it as a big family group, and my brother's kids who are, oh, God, I forget how old they are, but one's just started high school and one's just about to start high school. Um, they're little spindly kids. They... They carried half of my gear because I couldn't carry much of a pack. And they ran up and down the track. And, you know, they absolutely had a great time and they they weren't lamenting for their tablets or whatever. I think it's just, mm. I mean, it's incumbent on people to give kids the opportunity. Some people do things like that and they clearly are uncomfortable the whole time. Some people just, like on our trips to Stuart Island, some people go in the bush and they hate it. They're just terrified by the closeness and the claustrophobia and the not really knowing where you are and no matter how many times they go they never sort of get over that and in their case you know stop going to Stuart Island because you're you're, yeah. <laughs> you're forcing yourself to be miserable the whole time and don't but, go to Milford yeah we'll do something different or Fiordland yeah um but you know I I suppose it does worry me a bit but people don't have the experience and um but I mean, one of the great things about the South Island, why the, you know, I think the South Island is so much better than the North, is there's, there's far fewer people. And mm. everywhere you have people, you have impacts on natural resources and experiences. And, and I, if I go to a remote place, I don't love to see anyone else come in. And, I mean, it's never that bad. But, um, you know, you enjoy the freedom of having places to yourself and that sort of stuff. And, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe if every young person went into the hills, it would be overcrowded and we'd not enjoy it anyway but. it's a bit like the fishing argument <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i mean i i agree i i but you know kids our kids are going to go into the workforce and stuff and survive that technological stuff that they can do it's, they need it now mm -hmm. it's um i think the days of being able to make do without that are well and truly over yeah what made you want to learn to fly um 
when I came out of hospital, I was a wee bit at a loss. I mean, I was in the early stages of walking on prosthetic legs and I was pretty limited in the outdoors. It took me probably three or four years to really, it doesn't take that long to learn to walk, but to function in the outdoors, it took me quite a while. And a part of that is just figuring it out for yourself. But I'd, I'd had a lot of exposure to little aeroplanes and helicopters and my work at Fish and Game. I'd always sort of been mildly interested, but never thought I'd take too long to get a license and I don't really have time or money to do that but I w was after something to do when I came out to sort of distract me from some of the issues you know I was dealing with through my disabilities and so I really went to the Canterbury Aero Club and started the process as a bit of a a bit like training to run a marathon I thought I'd do it and see if I could get it done and I didn't have a sense that it would become you know, a serious part of my life. And mm. I guess a lot of people get their pilot's licence for that reason. They love the challenge of there's a structure to training. Today you do steep turns, tomorrow you do something else. And if you keep going along often enough, they'll give you a bit of paper at the end. Um, but I was sort of, I quite enjoyed the training, but I, I must admit I didn't really love it. But as soon as I got my licence and we decided to buy a plane, I really took to the, the the sort of experience of being able to go places and do things in the plane rather than just the fly, flying a perfect circuit or all that sort of the more technical stuff. And I don't know that I, I knew I was going to enjoy it until I came out the other end, and I suspect that's the case for a lot of people. Because yeah. um, you don't need any modifications to the aircraft to fly. Correct? No, I don't, but um, I... <laughs> I still have a bit of trouble with the pedals because um, I can't articulate my feet. So if I push in on a pedal, that foot tends to come away from the brake and the one that comes back out as the other pedal comes out when you push one in tends to drag a bit of brake. And I things go really well for like about a year and then I do then I just have something where it comes back like I I grab a bit of brake on takeoff or something. It's not safe. So Sounds like the rest of us. Yeah, I interesting. I mean, I've got my new later set of legs have got quite small feet on them by purpose, and all of a sudden I can find the like I can stop my. As you know, in a little airplane, you don't use the brakes. I mean, if you land and do a nice landing and you're well inside the runway, you tend to let the plane toot along to the end of the runway to cool the engine down, especially in a bigger engine plane. You, you know, you don't want to just land, turn the plane off. It's hard on it. So, I don't. You don't tend to use the brakes a lot, but I've. The new set of feet, I can actually really, plane's got much better brakes than I knew it had. But um, no, I don't have any modifications. And yeah. um, Tim Wallace had a 182 that he had hand control, some sort of hand brake put into it for operating the brakes by hand. And people have said I should look at that. And I just have sort of thought about it, but haven't never really pursued it because I haven't had any really serious things happen mm. um, with my feet. But um, I know a guy who we used to rent helicopters off a lot at Christchurch Airport, a guy, Terry Murdoch, who owns Christchurch Helicopters, and I got a bit of advice from him when I started to learn. <clears throat> and he said, oh, you'll probably be a bit slower getting all the skills because it's, you're going to have to figure out how to do everything that other people you know, can do straight away. But he said, in his experience, it's all about, Flying safely is all about decision making, not about hands and feet. You know, he said he trained helicopter pilots who could really quickly 
handle the machine but didn't necessarily have judgment to become good pilots and that has proven to be the case I I have a few more pre-landing checks that I do mm. you know like I really look at my feet and make sure they're in the right place I um, you know I there's a lot of pilots that probably should do the same thing yeah I <laughs> guess but um, I mean nose wheel Cessnas are meant to be really easy to land but I still have you know still have good days and bad days but I mean I've you know, got a few hours now, and I haven't had any serious whoopsies. So, um, yeah, did you it, have in, any opposition to you wanting to learn to fly, medical profession, or CAA? Or? Yeah, I had a real issue with C, uh, with the CAA medical. And when I got my license, you had to do a class two medical, and and if you don't meet the standard, you can go via a thing called an accredited medical conclusion. And I was always I've always had to be an accredited medical conclusion because I didn't meet the standard. Um, and the really frustrating thing for me is that if you've had a heart attack, there's plenty of data around to say that on average your chance of having another heart attack is probably about this. And they can make judgments based on statistics and averages. But with disability, every single person is different. And... Um, the only way to really determine it is to get in the cockpit with you. And that was never part of the process. You know, you think to the medical people, send someone down and go fly. You know, like someone like Carlton Campbell, it would have been great for someone like him to be sent to hop in the plane with me in a helpful way and look at what I did. But and that never happened. they just don't do that. No, they just, they, um, they make decisions, desktop decisions based on data that in the case of disabilities are a wee bit cruel really because... Um, like I applied for a commercial medical, a class one medical one, so I fancied I might go and do a commercial licence, and they sort of gave me one, but they put so many conditions on it that it really wasn't usable. I couldn't do IFR, I couldn't fly at night, and I couldn't carry passengers unless there was another pilot in the aeroplane, which is sort of doesn't really, there's not much else left. Maybe no. flying freight and a little flying white bait out of Cascade might be the only thing I could think of that you could do with, to meet those conditions. But I sort of took them up on it and I said, you know, why have I'm interested to know why you've got these restrictions? And they came back and said, if you had a crash, we don't think you could evacuate your passengers. And I was just thinking, I don't know, as a commercial pilot yourself, whether you did any training around evacuating passengers in a crash, but I suspect. It wasn't a big part of the syllabus. Or it almost seems like they feel like they've got to find some yeah. limitation to put on, whatever it is, and let's just throw this on. And honestly, I'm very realistic about my abilities as a pilot. Like most people, I don't don't fly as often as commercial guys, and I'm painfully aware that I don't have the experience of other people. And I'm always, you know, I probably turn around and weather that other people might proceed on. And But that's, that's my system, and it's worked for me today. Um, but... When people make judgments about your ability, physical ability from Wellington, I just find that it's just a bit dehumanising and it really sort of says you don't really belong in this profession. You know, you're not really meant to be here. We're only sort of tolerating you. And I, I suspect they, they could handle that better. I um, mean, I may not have met the standard as a, you know, might have been a rubbish commercial pilot anyway, but at least if you fail on certain, if you fail, if you don't meet the criteria of the flight test, well, that's, that's it. I don't mm. have a problem with that. But when it's done on something so silly as as not being able to evacuate a passenger in the event of a crash, it does seem a wee bit sort of 
humiliating. But. It would be so nice if they had a mentality of, you know, this guy really wants to get a PPL. Let's do everything we can to make it work within the rules, wouldn't it? And the example of, like you said, flying with Carlton, I mean, that just seems so practical, but that's just not what happens. No, it's not. And to be fair, I had a, I had a, a medical, ex- the guy who I went to for my medical really tried to help and he was helpful. The guys at the Euro Club, um, I had to keep getting these additional assessments at each step along the way that were, you know, before I went solo, I had to get checked out by the chief flying instructor and before I set my licence, my flight test, I had to do all that stuff and they were very kind. But <clears throat> in the back of it was um, was just this, this bunch of people sitting around a room who I'd never met and I just think it's a wee bit cruel and, mm. um, yeah, I mean, I absolutely get they've got to uphold the standard. I have no problem with that. And, um, you know, I wonder about the aspect of commercial flying that I would still probably be a bit uncomfortable with is just those days where you have to fly in rubbish weather when <clears throat> private pilots have the luxury of staying home. You know, I just, I don't love flying in really rough, crappy conditions and I suspect that would have always held me back a bit. But, yeah. um, you know, that's my call to make, not theirs. Mm, so. mm. What's people's reactions when you rock up to an airport and climb out of the plane with carbon fibre legs? Yeah, I, I haven't notice much I mean people have never said much one of the things with disability is sometimes people are really a bit scared to ask but the curious thing is to a T when you meet a Maori person they always ask you what happened to your legs mate and it's it never happens with European people it's they wait they've known you for months before they ask but Maori people you know I was fishing up at around the back of Gisborne the other day with a mate and this, this local guy came out with us in the boat, one of the local kamata of the local runanga or whatever. He said, "Get us." I introduced myself and he said, what happened to your legs straight away? It's, it's curious things. But, um, Is it just that openness in their culture, which, you know, lack of inhibitions to talk about potentially awkward things? Or? I've got no, I don't know where it comes from. And, mm. and when I talk to... People, they're not aware that they do it. But, it, but, but anyway, long and short of it, and I haven't had a lot of reaction. I mean, it's, um, I think that people just see, they just see that legs, are, prosthetic legs are there instead of real ones and they must be the same. So, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, uh, but anyway, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Mm. Finally, um, you've written a lot. A prolific writer, I would say, mm. in terms of, well, you've written two books, well, two versions of a book, pre-salmon and post-mini-salmon and also pre-illness and post-illness, I think, salmon fever. You've uh, written a lot of publications, fly fishing, game bird hunting, magazines and articles, scientific studies, whether it's salmon, brown trout, jet boating, national New Zealand Geographic, Air New Zealand in-flight magazine, Christchurch Press. Mm. It's obviously something you enjoy and are good at. Yeah, it's, you know, we talked before about young people on tablets, and I don't really lament that, but I do lament the fact that most, a lot of young people now can't write, and I, it's actually a relatively unusual, the thing I always, the thing I always sort of, um, lots of people have cool experiences, but not many people are able to write about them, and I've always Mm. enjoyed that, but because there's two skills to that. There's one being able to 
write some words that make sense and sound okay. But I think the thing that a lot of people, at least I struggle with, is the whole creativity side of it, coming up with something original that is not someone else's idea and is interesting. And not everyone can do that. Yeah, I'm not. Well, maybe they can. Yeah, I'm not sure where it comes from either. I, I, um, yeah, I often, I still, when I was writing, I don't particularly enjoy writing to deadlines. So when I was writing for the press and when I was writing, I had a few sort of commitments to magazines I used. To, and sometimes you'd get down and it had to be in tomorrow and you really had no idea what you were going to write. And I always struggle. I, I think every writer struggles with that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, I don't know where it comes from. You just sort mm. of, it's, it's, you must, as you go through life, you must see stuff and silently park it away in your brain and think sometime I'll get that back out and use it. But it's not particularly conscious. I certainly don't go around with a notebook and write crap down like that. <laughs> I think it's probably a bit like a, a musician, you know, who's tinkering away with tunes in their head and lyrics and, and it just flows yeah. out of them. Yeah, no, I, I don't understand how they do that at all. But I guess one of the things I've I've always said in my writing, I've always been a focus in a way, has, especially when I was at Fish and Game and stuff, is trying to dissect complicated things down so that everyone can understand them. And, and that's a real fault for a lot of writers is they they use such flowery language and they they some people choose to use their writing as a way to show off how many flesh words they know yeah, and yeah. it's always it doesn't engage you with the readers you know they mm. talk about you have to write for like a 12 year old or something yeah. because you know a lot about a subject but but sort of being able to describe it to someone especially like a newspaper reader who's got a whole bloody newspaper full of stuff to read and why would they stop and read yours that's that is a bit of a knack and you have to constantly think about um about how you will do that and lately i've been writing quite a bit for the aopa magazine and that's slightly different in that case because when i was writing about fishing and stuff i was always in a position that i usually knew more about the subject than the audience mm. but with aviation it's not that way at all lots mm. of the people who write are far more have far more understanding of aviation, have far more experience. So I've got to be really careful. I don't give advice about how to fly an aeroplane, which I'd, hopefully I'll be the last person to give. But you have to, I have to be quite careful about, um, you know, you want to describe an experience or, but not get into the stage where you're giving advice, which was, you know, when the fishing and hunting writing days, I was always giving advice. So I sort of had, it's been a bit of a challenge. It's been slightly different and you're aware that, if you get something slightly wrong in such a regulated industry, you know, you'll annoy somebody fairly quickly. And so it's sort of, I'm a wee bit more kid, it's a wee bit more careful about how I do that. But it's just the same thing. You just write about stories and experiences. And if people pick up one or two facts or, you know, ideas from a whole article, that's all you can hope for. Well, I think it takes a level of confidence to write stuff for the public domain i've written a few articles and you're putting your ideas and heart and soul out there Absolutely. and it can be critiqued and people can say well you were wrong or i don't agree so you need a level of confidence to be able to do that in the first place don't you yeah i guess but there's a lot of jobs where people do them and they don't really ever get any feedback about or any sense of whether they're doing good or bad in writing, as you said, everything is out there for, jo 
for public scrutiny and if magazines continue to ask you to write for them it's not out of politeness it's out because mm. you know you get instant feedback that <clears throat> stuff you're writing about is um is being well the consumers are, are appreciating it when i used to write there's a bit of a thing for about hunting books and hunting um articles that hunters often are not terribly widely read but they absolutely consume anything about hunting that comes out so you go to their house and they've probably got a lot of books but they're all about hunting and so hunters are relatively easy to write for because they're so grateful for anyone to write about what they're passionate about when i used to write articles in the press it was the dead opposite because you were just writing for everybody and i yeah. got far more feedback on those press articles than i ever got from anything else i wrote because people both good and bad yeah i didn't get a lot of bad but i wrote a, a guy i knew i knew this guy who had some pig dogs and he um he he I've never been one for going out and chasing pigs with dogs and you know killing the pig with the knife, but anyway, I thought I'd write about it and I wrote about this thing. And this guy was, um, he was so proud to be in the paper. This the guy who took me out hunting, and I thought, and he told me that he had been in the paper before, but only in the court pages. <laughs> and um, this was the first time he'd been. He's really stepping up. No, oh, I mean he was a nice guy. I mean he obviously had a bit of a hard early life, but um, um, now the press it was interesting. It was very. Yeah, the number of people that read stuff, you know, everywhere you went, people would would um, say that they'd read your article last yep. week about something mm. odd. And um, so no, there was quite a lot of, you get instant feedback and and if you're doing well, you, you get sort of, there's no hiding behind other people's work. It's all yours, it's yeah, out yeah. there. And, and I, I did enjoy that side of it. It's very transparent and very... Um, yeah, I found it quite rewarding. Mm. And you've also done a lot of photography. In some of the pictures I've seen, which were stunning, um, the Cessna 206 up at Lake Sumner, mm. those photos with the sunlight on the water mm. and on the float plane was amazing. Mm. Little photos or photos of salmon, eggs and fry which is, you know, a level of detail which you don't see. And um, some of the photos in that New Zealand Geographic article, um, amazing. Oh, thank you. Mm. But there's a thing with photography, and I have sort of fallen out the habit of it, but you've got to be a geek who carries... It's a bit different with phones now, but you've really got to be a geek who carries a camera around all the time. And any time you think there might be a photo, you have to start taking pictures. Mm. And I've sort of fallen a wee bit out of the habit of it, but... Um, you know, I remember talking to this guy, might have been a press photographer or something, and he was a celebrated photographer, but he said, you people like you often get the best photos because you go to the best, you're always going to interesting places and you're always doing interesting things, whereas a photographer in an office gets sent, you know, if you get sent to take a picture, it's never daylight or dusk, it's always the middle of the day. And, and he, he did say that one of the main skills of photography it's going to cool places and um, being prepared to stop what you're doing, pick up your camera and take a picture. So. And annoy your wife all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Last question. There's so many things that you seem to love doing and be really good at, whether it's fishing or hunting or fisheries management or flying or writing or whatever. What are your three top passions in life? You can rate them if you want. Or... Um well, I mean, flying's become really important because 
it's something I didn't do before. And, and as a person with disabilities, you have times, and I said before there's often public not criticism, but people with disabilities often su suffer prejudice and stuff. But let me tell you, the biggest critic of people with disabilities is the person themselves. So you're your own biggest critic, and you have times where you just, you, ha you feel you've got no sort of self worth or whatever because you can't undertake a simple task and oddly it sounds a tiny bit arrogant but hopping in a plane and flying which I know a lot of people can't do or don't choose not to do it gives me a sense that it re restores some of your self-worth you know mm. you, you go out I read this thing by an experienced pilot who said one of the most satisfying things about flying I think it was a helicopter pilot was putting the helicopter back in the hangar at the end of the day intact <laughs> and for him Despite all of the cool stuff that happened the day, there's this real sense of putting it home to bed at night and you can use it again the next day if you want so to. True. So true. So that's been, that's been really rewarding. And I, the thing that really impresses me about aviation is you get people who are getting to the age where they should be slowing down and, you know, like, and they've still got their tablets out. They're talking about the latest app and trying to get an IFR rating or something. There's something about if you love something, you'll... You'll keep working at it, and I respect the fact that even some really people have been there and done everything. They still love it every time they go out, and they're always striving for to improve. Which mm. you think about your way you drive your car. I don't. I don't go out every day thinking I should do better. I just turn the key on and drive the car. But with flying, there is a sense that you're always trying to get better and always trying to improve or whatever. Mm. So that's that's. Um, really important i i do the fishing and hunting type stuff is um it's gone from catching a lot and whatever to i, I do love the experience of being in cool places in new zealand and that that uh, i used to want to try and see everything and now i tend to be more i really want to go back to the places i i've been to a lot before and connect with them i really yeah. enjoy that side of it um the Stewart Islands. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it's not the only place, but I love. Mm. I do love that connection with places. Maori talk about Fokapapa about connection with landscapes, and you know how when people do, um, pofries or whatever, or the um, God, I forgot the word now. The um, where you do your introduction, it's all about your connection, which tribe you came from, which is you know a Maori thing, but also the landscapes and the, and the things that you feel connected to. And yep. I, I sort of get that because mm. Whakapapa is about connection with places through, it's not through hundreds of years of association, it's your, your grandfather and your father who are still alive when you're young telling you about places and, and you getting that connection to places. So I guess they're the sort of passions, but... Yeah, I don't know. The other thing I think of is I look at some of my friends who are my age and starting. some of them are starting to give up on life. Like they're starting to say, oh, I'm too old to go hunting. And you listen, listen, look at the music they listen to and they listen to the same stuff they listen to at school and they haven't, there's never a new item in their playlist. They've never bought a new CD or got into anything new. And I, <clears throat> I do sort of think you have to keep your brain active and keep sort of pushing, not necessarily learning, but, but you but just settling back and some people just seem to get old before their time and give up on life. And I, I don't really get that. I, I think it's, you know, you've got to keep trying to 
find something to challenge you. It doesn't have to be climb Mount Everest, but something that's you've always got a goal ahead or something to work mm. towards. So. I agree. It's easy when you get into your 50s to take the easy life and start winding down, but yeah. you'd wind down pretty quickly if that was the whole attitude. Yeah, I mean, I have days. Like I had a day at Stuart Island a couple, well, a couple of trips ago where I got out of the boat with this little dinghy we used to get up the river, and I thought I could just skip across this bit of mud, and I ended up above my knees in this sticky, oozy, you know, that sulfury-smelling tidal ooze. And I, I was stuck because I, I, only way I could get out was I had to reach down the mud, take my legs off, leave my legs in the mud, then go and sort of dig them out. The rest of us can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you could probably wiggle your toes out. You wouldn't have got there. But I, anyway, I got back to camp. There was mud. You know, I just, every bit of me had mud. The only way I got across the mud to the boat was I got my expensive gun and lay it across the mud like a, I mean, I was never in danger, but I just, so everything was just mud everywhere. And I thought, ah, oh, had enough of this. It's ridiculous, you know. It's, but yeah, have a day off and mm. have a couple of beers and rethink about life. And the next day, it's, you're back out there doing it again, yep. learning from your mistakes. But it is easy just to have little hurdles and give up. And I'm mm. sort of, um, yeah, trying to avoid that. Mm, good on you. Anyway, thanks very much for talking to me. Um, it's been a great privilege to talk to you, and you probably don't think so, but I look to you and see you as an inspiration, oh, thank you. Um, not only for myself, but I'm sure for others as well. So thanks very much. Oh, you're welcome.